Well, you know, you're always the smart one when I'm here. Well, you know, it's it's all it's all it's all relative, my friend. Hey, <laughs> where is that? Wait a minute. Hey, where is that echo coming from? There it is. <laughs> Where's that noise coming from? <laughs> oh, I think it's coming from my can of tea. Hold on, let me move the can of tea. Hold on. You're getting an echo from a can of tea. Yes, it was coming from the can of tea. That's I pretty said the can on the floor. Yeah, because the, the can's like right behind the mic. Wait, I'm going to try to... That's oh, your way of testing for an echo? You make that sound? <laughs> well, that's the only... Well, there it is now. Yes, it's the can of tea. Well, I, I don't know. It's, quick, it... quick, do the sound. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Is it echoing? <laughs> yes, it's echoing. It's like bouncing off the... T- I, I must have... I've drank enough to make this sound. It's, <laughs> it's echoing my voice Just... out of the can of tea. Here's my suggestion. Don't what? go... And we don't have to worry. <laughs> no, but now I'm hearing it all the time. So wait, I moved the camera. You, you're away. hearing that sound all the time, or you're hearing just an echo of your actual voice? No, I'm hearing it echo myself, but I only know. Yeah. <laughs> yep, it was only when the tea can was there. How about if you do Arnold? Does that echo? Wait, hold on. I got to put it back up here. All right, let's try it again. Try it up here. La, la, la. No, I'm not hearing it with Arnold. See? Because Arnold is too la, tough. La, la, yeah. la. There it is. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it's at my normal voice of the. It echoes, and then and then I move it away. I put it down on the floor. Nothing. Listen, listen ah. to you bending down and putting things on the floor without it, without being out of breath. How did that happen? Well, I didn't have to bend all the way over. I just put one arm down, and so you know, very funny. Well, last last time with the uh, keyboard on the floor, <laughs> I, was, I was afraid of getting the I've, I've fallen and can't get up message. <laughs> Help me. You're like, like when you turn a turtle upside down. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny, mother. <laughs> yeah, it's not funny to the turtle. <laughs> to the rest of the world, it's quite amusing. Back to the bin. Who's bringing us in? Not me. Not me. Wait a minute. Did I say it last? (laughs) (laughs) Should I interrupt you like you did for me last time? I'm really gonna bring it in. <laughs> Come on. Uh, what are we doing? What are our books? What show la, is this? La, la. Who am I? La la. Hello, and welcome to back to the bins. I am Doctor <laughs> Bill, <laughs> and my executive producer, Paul Spataro, is here with us. Say hello. Hey, how Paul. you doing? Shut up. That's enough out of you. And we have a specially talented, special, special came in on the... No, no, I won't, I won't finish that. that uh, I might get uh, in trouble for my statement now. Uh, we, we have a special <laughs> guest. Uh, oh, I think he's giggling like a little schoolgirl. <laughs> Come on, what is your name? What is your name? What, who is your daddy and what does he do? What's your name, little schoolgirl? <laughs> How the hell did I get relegated to special guest status? <laughs> how did, how did that is, happen? And of course, it's Scott Gardner. 
<laughs> oh, good lord! I think I think this is shaping up to be an episode full of my having issues with things or how and how they're run around here. That's I'm I'm just thinking that's that's forming already. All right. Well, there is a new show policy that if you have any issues, you should put them in the form of writing, <laughs> print it, and then throw it in the trash because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> just saying oh no, no. we're Lord. we're good to be back together again on back <laughs> to the bins and this is episode insert number here <laughs> well here we go this will be episode number 135 mm. does that make you happy? is it yes this is one th- so what's one once 134 i haven't heard 130, that one. 134 we'll be posting through the the world of podcast uh, time travel, timey wimey screwing <laughs> things up, uh, that's the episode I recorded last week with Mister Jackanetti and Mister Rifen. Ah, okay. I'm as I was MIA, or as I call it, my hibernation, my forced work hibernation, being on call. I just go to sleep and wait for the phone to ring. I'm gonna go out on a limb and 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 guess that Luke's Luke's uh, synopsis, the book that he brought, that the character's name probably rhymes with Bachman. Is that right? Uh, what book did Luke have? No, no, uh, <laughs> no, really. Luke's Luke's character, and I can say it because it's not a spoiler. Because when somebody's listening to this, that will already have been posted a week before. Uh, 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 Luke's character rhymes with Buckleberry Gowned. okay all right okay which was a very interesting book to bring on because it's just so different than what we normally have that's true that's true i'm glad it was somebody else for a change because for for a while there i was very i grew to be very self-conscious about things that were off the beaten path um because it seems to me and maybe i'm misremembering this but it seems like we got a piece of correspondence at some point that was like, okay, you know, Gardner is consistently picking books that are like, well, where the hell did you get that? So, well, you know, but I, I personally like when you, when a book like that comes in, like the time when you picked that weird, uh, for an, for an independent book, you picked the, I can't remember what the weird, it was just a really strange one that was kind of a mix of like X-Men Type characters. Oh, yeah, that, that. oh it was it a Rob, Rob, Rob Liefeld. Liefeld. Yeah. Well, that one was fun because it was just fun, just taking the piss out of yeah, it. It was such a piece of crap was, that it was. It, it was, was fun. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> or a piece of crap. Crap. But I mean, I mean, my collection's full of just you know all kinds of crap. weird little oddball things you know that are way off on the fringes of you know in, in a lot of instances well beyond the fringes of my personal comfort zone when it comes to comics because uh well you know right now i'm listening to this will give you a, a clue how far behind i am on my podcast listening but i'm listening to the series that the leylands are doing on I'm not sure what they're calling it or if it's even supposed to be some sort of event or something but they're covering things that are outside their comfort zone. So they did like an episode about GI Joe and I just listened to one they did about Conan and, and I'm enjoying it because I, I respect the way that they're handling it. It's like, okay, we're, we're stepping out of our comfort zone, which is something I just don't really do that 
that often in comics because, you know, think what you want. But to me, comics, I, I realize that comics are a medium, not a genre. I, I've heard this mantra repeated a lot lately in, in all kinds of different venues. But to me, comics at its pure, uh, purest form is it's superheroes. I'm sorry. That's just how I feel about comics. Yeah, it can, you know, you can have detective comics and you can have, you know, funny animal comics and you can have sex comics and you can have all these different types, but in its purest form, comics is superheroes to me. That's what it means to me. So that's just, that's always been my comfort zone. Um, but it, yeah, every once in a while, it's fun to, to step outside of that and pull in something else. So I'll continue to do it, but I'll do it from time to time. Whereas for a while there, uh, I think I did get into uh, almost a routine of every time purposely avoiding the superheroes and the mainstream stuff that really is, you know, the stuff that, you know, where I live when it comes to comics. Right. Well, I, I would throw that out to the listeners slash emailers. Uh, and I, I think with, with the understanding that we're probably not going to change how we pick our books. Uh, right. But I would be curious to know, do people like it better when we're covering a book that they've read and they're familiar with it and they're, and they're listening to it and, and picturing what we're talking about while we're doing it? Or do they like when we bring something new to the table that they may not have even thought of reading and that you know we're throwing something new out for them? You know, what, what do they enjoy most when we do it? I'd be curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Very much so. Oh, sorry. I was eating a Pop-Tart. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into... That's what you did, Bill. Sorry. Before we get into the next uh, segment here, and in order to give Bill more chew time on his Pop-Tart, I just want to throw out a, a real big... This is so far overdue. I feel horrible about this. It really is an overdue shout-out at this point. But a couple episodes back, one of the uh, guests that you guys had on, and I felt really bad I couldn't be there for that show, but one of the guests that you had on for a really solid episode, by the way, was uh, our friend Dario Gonzalez. And I was fortunate enough, um, this, this will tell you how awesome this guy is, went completely out of his way on his vacation that, you know, he, he came down to Orlando, came to Walt Disney World, on his own dime, on his own initiative, on his own time. And you guys know, you've been there. Time is money. You know, I mean, come on, that's already an axiom, but nowhere else in the whole world is that more true than when you're at Walt Disney World, right? Time is money. Clock's ticking. You know, you've spent a lot for your vacation. Time is precious when you're there because it means a lot monetarily. Took time out of his busy vacation to actually truck all the way out to Pop Century Resort, where I was, you know, that's my home resort. It's where I was for the holidays. Came to see me, just to shake hands, just to to meet up for a minute, get a quick picture together, you know, shoot the breeze for a few minutes. Plus, he brought me presents. How cool is that? Yeah, I was busting his chops uh that that he brought you presents. (laughs) I heard that. Lives 15 minutes from me and has brought me nothing. (laughs) I thought that was hysterical. I did catch that. <laughs> but so here's just what to... he brought me. I thought, oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. You t- t- finish yours. And here's what he brought me. I thought this was awesome. A really, really nice copy of Action Comics number 439. Spectacular cover on this. This is the one where uh, Superman is being belted up out of the water by a giant hairy arm while this couple is in a rowboat nearby about being capsized. Great issue. 
Um, this is actually in inside. This is an early. This maybe even be the first one. I'm not sure, but this is a Captain Strong story in here. Um, not sure if it's the first Captain Strong story, but one of the early Captain Strong stories. Love this issue. Um, I actually have this one already. I had it signed by uh, uh, Nick Cardi uh, a while back at um, at MegaCon, but I was looking to get another copy because mine, is, the one I had already, was not in that great a shape. Uh, Action Comics number four twenty six. This is a classic cover, and I, again, I think this is Cardi, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. But this is where there's an airplane that wing has come off the airplane and it's plummeting straight down at the ground at this crowd of people that are in like a like a city park or something. They're all pointing up into the sky and you see Car- uh, Clark Kent, who's barely hidden behind some shrubs and he's uh, stripping off his clothes, turning into Superman and, and his thought balloon is this is a job for and then out loud he says, Superman, and I always get a kick out of this. This was something they did in, in comics a lot back during this time where the hero would start a thought in their head and then they would say the end of the thought out loud. And I always thought those moments when other people were around, they must have thought the person was out of their mind to do something like that. You should live in my house. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be looking and saying, why did somebody put that? And then I'll say, Here! <laughs> right. <laughs> and they'll look at me. <sighs> Never mind. <laughs> this is an issue I, I did not previously have, and I don't know that I've ever read it, and I'm really looking forward to it because uh despite how I felt about him later in his career, this era of Kurt Swan Superman I really love because this this totally harkens back to my childhood. So I'm really looking forward to digging into this issue. Likewise, the next issue I didn't previously have, um, Action Comics 433, with Superman. He's up in the sky above what is obviously New York City because there's the Statue of Liberty in the background. He's using what looks like his heat vision, but he says it's actually his infrared vision. And with his infrared vision, he can see these uh, like ghostly outlines that are reaching out and doing the one thing the song tells you don't do. They're tugging on Superman's cape. Not cool. He's about to whoop their asses, I'm thinking. Uh, Again, never read this issue. It looks really good, and I love the interior art on this. A copy of The Shadow, the old DC Comics series, The Shadow, number seven. uh, Didn't we cover number six on the show one time? Did we? I know we covered an issue. I couldn't remember what issue it was. Um, I have long wanted all of the issues in this, so this gets me that much closer because I didn't already have this one. This is is by... um, Frank Robbins. And what's funny is prior to us covering that issue that we did cover, if somebody had given me this issue or I'd gotten this issue, I'd probably be like, eh, Frank Robbins, eh, yeah, thanks, whatever. But ever since I read that issue, I've developed a new appreciation for Frank Robbins' The Shadow. I, I've come to, I kind of dig this now. Yeah, it, that's, that's the way I am with it. I mean, hmm. it's not Kaluta. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from Kaluta. But there's something fun about it that I really like. It has a very pulpy feel that I really enjoy on this. So I'm looking forward to digging into that one as well. Um, let's see. I'm glad, here. I'm glad we've we've you, you've come over to the dark side on that because I remember <laughs> when we talked about it, you you could not have disagreed with me much more than you did. Well, it's funny on that subject of of us disagreeing. Um, I, I'm very Uh-oh. curious for you to <laughs> the latest uh, the latest Star Wars Monthly Monday if you haven't heard it already because. Uh, 
the art team on the issue of Indiana Jones that we talked about. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you feel very differently about how I feel about that particular art team. So I haven't listened yet, but who, which team are you talking about? Herb Trimpey and Vinnie Coletta. Uh, I, I like Herb Trimpey a lot. See, I know you do. (laughs) And I, and I do not, I do not. So yeah, Yeah, he just did the last, um, well, the one, I did, didn't he? He did the art in the Godzilla Godzilla, book. Godzilla, yeah. Godzilla, yeah. Godzilla. Vinnie Coletta is an interesting case study, though, because he was, or yeah, I guess he's he's deceased now, I think. He was a very talented artist, uh, but he always, you know, he would rush it and half-ass things just for the sake of speed. But you see, when you see issues where he took his time, he, he really had a lot of talent. Well, see, that's the shame of it. I completely agree with you because I, that's the shame of it. As we saw with that one issue of uh, Frankenstein's monster that we looked at there a while back, his inking in that when he wasn't cutting corners looked really impressive. It it really complemented. Um, was that a Merrick issue? I think. Yes, it was. Yeah, it really complemented Merrick's art, which you wouldn't. I, I would naturally think you know if somebody told me, hey, there's this issue where. Where Coletta inks Merrick, I would naturally I would think, oh, he must have ruined it. You know, he must have done a, his typical hack job. But with that issue, for the most part, he didn't, and it was very complimentary. It looked very nice. So it's not like I don't think the guy. Maybe that's why I'm so down on him now that I think about it. Maybe subconsciously, it's like I know you can do a better job, so it pisses me off when you don't. You know, almost yeah. like teacherly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and and it does because I, I've seen where he can do the job he's just not and so it annoys me but yeah, you team the two of those guys up two guys that I already think have very sketchy questionable styles and yeah I mean what's funny though is that in the, in the end Chris and I both ended up giving the book art wise gave the book still a passing grade because it here was our glowing endorsement not as bad as we thought it was going to be. So how do you, how's that? For the, uh, it's damning with faint praise. There you go. Yeah, that's that's the cover copy for for the trade paperback. Not as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, it's here. it's like the the talk that parents have when the kids come home with a report card that has you know like all C's. You know, if I thought that was the best you could do, I'd be okay with it. But I know right. you can do better. No, you can do better. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's how I uh, felt when um, my wife came home and said, oh, well, I know how much we're going to have to spend for braces for Ben. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's not as bad as I thought it as high as I thought it was going to be. Great. Right. It's still going to clean me out, but not as bad oh, yeah. as I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple more quick books here. We've got uh, Superman number 212, which this is a favorite from when I was a kid. And in much better shape than the uh, very raggedy copy that I have. If I still even have this book, I'm not sure. But uh, Superman 212 is the issue where, or the cover rather, where Supergirl is holding open a family album that has the stories such as The Police Meet the Babe of Steel, The Earthman Who Saved Baby Kal-El on Krypton, and Super Baby's Life in the Orphanage. And Superman is horror-stricken. He says, no, Supergirl, you're not showing the readers my baby pictures. (laughs) And she says, yes, Superman. The whole issue is devoted to our adventures as super babies. And, you know, it might sound really silly these days, but I 
loved this shit when I was a kid. And I, I just I have such a soft spot for all these old Super Baby stories. I used to get a kick out of Super Baby. And uh, I'm looking forward to rereading this because I haven't read this stuff in years. Love this stuff. As a matter of fact, you know what? Come to think as I'm flipping through here real quick. I know I don't have my copy of this anymore because I can remember cutting panels out of this when I was a kid. The, the, the story at the back of this, the last, uh, the last Super Baby story in here, I, I just, I have distinct memories of cutting panels out and pasting them up on my wall as a kid. So, really glad Dario gave me a replacement copy of that one, <laughs> which you promptly took and cut out panels and hung up on your wall. There you go. <laughs> and then you silly putty and slapped it on it to pull it off. This last one, speaking of uh, of getting out of our comfort zone, uh, which I'm now I've forgotten. Was that pre show talk or uh, anyway? No, I think that's I think <laughs> no, that's, that, in, the that's show. in the show. Okay, uh, last book here, and it's funny because Dario said the same thing himself. He goes, "I'm not sure how you feel about this, but I thought I'd throw it in there." So this is cool. This will be in a future episode, I promise. Weird War Tales number thirty, and. Uh, not only am I not sure that I've never read a Weird War Tales, I know that I don't have one in my own collection. So I'm looking forward to covering this just, you know, to give you an honest impression. What did I think of my first, more, what's very likely my first issue of uh, is, Weird War is that, Tales? Is that what the Haunted Tank was in? Maybe eventually. I don't think it's in this With particular the unknown soldier. Um, yes, yet. This looks like it's strict anthology, and I don't recognize any of the features that are in here. But uh, it is a DC but, book, though, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I, I will definitely give you the the full skinny on this once I read it. The uh, the art looks very good on the first. Who is this? It looks like Alcala to me. Oh no, that's that Jerry Talawak. T a l a o c. Oh, stories by uh, Dave Michelini. How about that? Hey. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll, I'll be covering Symmetry. this. Symmetry. Yeah, there you go. I'll be covering this in a uh, in an upcoming show. It looks interesting. I uh, I'm not really much for war comics, and as I say, I, I'm I'm pretty sure I've never read a Weird War Tales. I, I'm pretty sure I've never owned a Weird War Tales. So I'm curious, just from a yeah, get outside your comfort zone and check something different out, kind of angle on this so full report forthcoming but again i, I want to say a big thank you to daria i really appreciate that because uh man these uh these are some books going back a good number of years now and this stuff's starting to uh to really climb in price and value on places like ebay and such so i appreciate him just walking them up and handing them to me because that's that's pretty awesome yeah that, and we got a nice really picture cool. together too i'm sorry what'd you say paul i said that is really cool it is very nice i really appreciate mm -hmm. it I want to I want to tag on to your thank you to Dario with an advanced thank you because I haven't actually received them yet, but a uh, friend of the show Russell Bragg has contacted me and is sending me some books. Uh, he's sending me uh, Batman: The Long Halloween. Uh, I forget now what the name of the sequel to that is. Dark. Uh, Dark Vi Victory. Dark Victory. Uh, he's sending me those two trade paperbacks and the trade paperback for the uh, Death of Gwen Stacy which will save me from ever having to take my original copies of those out of the uh, <laughs> out of the bags, which I really appreciate. And then a couple of DC anthology books on top of that. So I really appreciate that. And uh, Charlie Nehemiah is sending me, We, uh, if you recall, I don't remember which one it was, a couple of episodes ago we talked about uh, 
uh, Excalibur. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And Char- Charlie contacted me, and, and I was because I was asking then, oh, should I, you know, should I read it? Where should I start? Whatever. And uh, he contacted me and said he's got the first twenty-five issues that he's going to send to me. There you go. You guys were talking about that stuff because you were you were in a conversation about uh, about Paul Neary, and I just wanted to piggyback on that that I've long been a fan of uh, of Paul Neary, particularly when he would ink over um, Alan Davis. I, I think mm-hmm. those two guys are just a hell of an art team, and they had a fantastic run on. It was a Batman title. It was either Batman or Detective, I forget. Maybe maybe it was both. Maybe they were doing both titles at the same time. Something like that. But this was right around... Is that after Aparo? It was... Oh, God. I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. It was either just prior to the... No, I think it was just after the crisis. I think it was oh, just after the crisis, but just prior to Jason being bumped off, I think. Yes, yes, it was, because there was a cover... Um, it's pre death in the family, but there's a cover by, uh, those guys that is Batman walking. I think he's walking out of a, like flames or something, carrying Robin's limp body. That is very reminiscent of what they would do to Jason just, you know, like a year or two later, their run is very brief. I'm trying to remember who the writer was. And I want to say it was Mike W. Barr, I think. Their run is not very long, but between the writing and there are a hell of a good run. Some really good Batman stuff. And I think Batman Year 2 is in that stretch as well, if I'm not mistaken. Which I still hold head and shoulders above Batman Year 1. I think Bat- uh, Year 2 was a hell of a good story. Did they do an Elseworlds? Yeah, but they did they do an Elseworlds? Did they do yeah. the nail? The nail, yeah. I think they did both of them. They did the yeah, nail and then okay. another nail, yeah. But they Those did were a really sequel. Good. Yeah, they were really good. They did a sequel to uh, Batman Year Two. It was called Full Circle, and that's fantastic as well. And uh, they did a series. I can't remember if it was UK exclusive or it originated in the UK and then it came over here. Something like that. But it was. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was tangentially tied into like X-Men and maybe even Excalibur. It was called um, Clandestine. Uh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was some really good art. Yeah, too. Was, that was a Marvel UK book, if I remember. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Story was eh, but the art was fantastic. I, I just think they're a really solid team. I've always enjoyed those guys a lot. So when you were talking about that stuff, it was kind of bringing back memories and making me think that, uh, oh, yeah, you know, I one of these days I need to go back and complete my run of those early issues, at least so long as they were the art team on um, Excalibur. So I really enjoyed that stuff. And uh, just <clears throat> just before we go wander too far away from it, because since Charlie is sending uh, those to me, I want to uh, just go because they recently announced that uh, Charlie and his wife Angie are uh, expecting, and I just wanted to throw out a congratulations. Oh, oh congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations, Charlie. Didn't know you had it in you. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Angie has it in her. Uh, but congratulations and best of luck. That was a joke. That was a joke, I promise. No, and I, thank God we don't have to hear you whine about not getting anything anymore. <laughs> you know, I get, well, you, you know, for a while. I don't know how long this will keep me satisfied, but, you know, it'll, oh. do, it'll do for now. Shove a Snickers bar in your mouth. It'll satisfy you. I, uh, I had the privilege of to wet my beak, you know? <laughs> I had the privilege to meet uh, Charlie and his wife briefly uh, this year when they were uh, visiting Disney as well. And a hell of a nice guy. I really like Charlie. So 
Congratulations. That's excellent. All right. And on that note, let's, uh, let's do our email. Sweet. Who wants the first one? Uh, let's see. That would be the uh, I can, 29th. I can do it if you like. Yeah, why don't you do the first one? I'll do the second one. All right. This one uh, is entitled Back to the Bins, number 132. G.I. Joe, Wonder Woman, and the Authority. It says, hello. And I love how our names are all abbreviated here. You've got Pull, P-L, for Paul. Paul, S-P-T-R, Pull, Spatur, and Dr. He's got problems with vowels. Yeah, he took out all the vowels. All the vowels are gone. He says, uh, great episode as usual. Poor Paul. First, nobody gives him comic book gifts, and now they diss his Arnold. Which is just Russell was the first one to remedy the no one gives me comic book gifts. So again, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I love this next line because he says, I personally respect your Arnold impression, which says, I don't like your Arnold impression. I respect your Arnold impression. At least you give it a try. (laughs) I can read between the lines. Okay, Russell, I know exactly what you're saying, dude. (laughs) He says, and you have the best la, la in the business. Yes, you do have a good la, la. That didn't sound right. <laughs> Sounded good in my head. That, that maybe may, that may be a, a, a kept clip thought in, in my itself. head. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something you'd read on like the side of a men's room stall or something. Paul has Paul's a good la la. Paul I seriously la-la. hope you've never read that on a men's room stall. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bill may perform his Arnold more often during a show, but that doesn't take uh, away from yours. Don't forget, Dr. Bill doesn't do Gary Cooper. That is this, prob- <laughs> this probably means nothing coming from me, a mere listener. Oh, that's not true, dude. He says, but considering all the hard work you do in producing this show and studying hard-to-find comic tidbits and other fun facts for the synopses, I hereby dub thee Professor Paul. Okay, I'm okay. going to interrupt right there. And I'm going to interrupt say, too, but I'll let you go first. I'm going to say I appreciate that sentiment. I think it's very nice of you to, to do that. But we already have Professor Allen, who actually is a professor. Mm-hmm. And also, I believe Mr. Bailey is occasionally called Professor Mike. So mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate it, but I'm going to have to respectfully decline on that as my name. If you can come up with something else. I oh, no, wait. See, see, because we have Professor Paul, we have Dr. Bill, and we got Special Scott. <laughs> or he's our special guest special school school, special right, school. So here's the here's here's the thing okay because you cited the exact same examples i was going to cite one of them is is a perfect example you got professor allen who actually is a professor you've got professor bailey who not a professor but i'm pretty sure he had that tag long before i came along long before i came to know him let's and say. long before we knew professor allen so we right. have a real professor in the house at that point. So, so let me just point out that that's, that some of us are actual professors of a sort that that don't seem to get this label, and and it, and it bothers some of us. Let's just put it that way. So, what what the hell is this Professor Paul thing? You know, well, I, for I, that matter, what's 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 this producer Paul thing? <laughs> hey, there we go, producer Paul. I can't even say it with a straight voice. Just as long as you don't call me pee-pee. We'll we'll call you (laughs) pee-pee. 
What's up, PP? <laughs> I'm I saying by WPP. Yeah, yeah, see? Yeah, see? I don't say PP. <laughs> it's got too much BGM. <laughs> PP sent me to rub you out, see? Give me a little dog, too. Those are terrible imitations, by the that way. That was horrible. Yeah. Where's your messiah now? Yeah, see? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All I could do is from the Ten Commandments. That's it. All right. On to the comics. He says, G.I. Joe. All I know about G.I. Joe is Jackson Beck uh, narrating commercials and Sergeant Slaughter. For whatever reason, I just could never get into the character. I suppose I am getting dangerously close to losing my back-to-the-bins listening privileges. No, not at all. First, I haven't seen Thor 1 or 2, and now this. Wonder Woman. Since I never followed Wonder Woman in the comics, my knowledge mostly comes from the cartoons and Linda Carter. With some some research, this story was after Diana took back the mantle of Wonder Woman, but before she can fully return to her... Uh, past superheroic life, she must first prove her worthiness to rejoin the JLA by undertaking 12 tasks. What the hell? Yeah, I looked, after after we got this letter, I I looked it up, and there's 12 separate issues. It's kind of ponderous. Wow. Ponderous, man, ponderous. Something tells me that if Superman had quit the JLA, they would not make him perform 12 tasks in order to rejoin. They'd be like, sure, okay, yeah. What they should have done was at each task they should have shown the jail the the male members of the JLA sitting there laughing at her, laughing their asses off, or, yes. or you know, or just looking you know like at filming it for like TNA purposes. Either that or paying not any bit of attention whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go do these things. I'll see you yeah. later. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's actually more of a Legion move, I think. Because didn't the Legion do that to somebody? I, I want to say Supergirl. They kept sending her off on like these meaningless, pointless missions that in the end they ended up admitting, yeah, we didn't care whether you succeeded or not. We were just kind of messing with you. That, that was the kind of <laughs> dick things that the Legion would do. Oh, by the way, Scott, Bill and I came up with stuff for you to do. <laughs> oh, it's not 12 labors, is it? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, he says each monitored by one of her former Justice League teammates. Think two nineteen follows the sixth or seventh task. Uh, all the stories are reprinted in the trade paperback. Wonder Woman: The Twelve Labors. You'll forgive me if I don't run right out and grab that one, Russell. <laughs> but if anybody wants is- to send a free copy, <laughs> there you go. I will read it. This is The Authority. Nothing I can say about this comic since I didn't even know it existed. But with Professor Paul's Velvet Jones, or rather Velvet Tones, (laughs) (laughs) during this synopsis. Uh, But it did sound interesting. Since I'm writing this email after Christmas, I thought of another movie role Arnold should never have. Ebenezer Scrooge in a Christmas car. I would watch that. I would I would like to see Arnold play Ebenezer Scrooge. I think that would be funny. He says, or Bob Cratchit for that matter, or maybe Tiny Tim. <laughs> Tiny Tim would be hilarious. You can have Arnold doing the one-man show that Patrick Stewart does. There you go. Because <laughs> that's all for now. Uh, I don't want to... But it's Christmas. <laughs> 
says, I don't want to wear out my welcome. Thanks for keeping me entertained at work. I humbly remain your faithful listener. And that's from Russell Bragg in Clarksville, Clarksville or Clarksburg, rather. Clarksburg, West Virginia. <laughs> Do not worry about wearing out your welcome. Not a problem, not at all. Man, Russell. We appreciate your, your letters. <laughs> and you gave us a good laugh on a couple of points. But sadly, I have to reject the nickname. I don't. <laughs> what? <laughs> huh? Who? Eh? Who's got the next one? I guess I do. And the next one... Hold on, I'm waiting for my page to actually change. Get my uh, girl from Ipanema here. It is, and... The next one, cue the spam music, is from <laughs> Jason Trenner, and it is titled Godzilla Roar, Back to the Bins 133. Hey guys, before we get to the king of all monsters, I'd say I eat veil. I believe that's supposed to be veal. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> Sorry. No, I was thinking... <laughs> I was that is funny, but I was laughing at something else. I was as soon as you said Godzilla roar, I had the Katy Perry song in my head, and I just see Godzilla, you know, singing. I'm gonna, you're gonna hear me roar. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, actually, I'd try nearly anything other than mushrooms. Just not a fan of those. You gotta For... get the right kind. Oh, sorry, never mind. <laughs> For Vale, the only question... And I'm sorry, you wrote Vale. I'm going to say Vale. <laughs> For Vale, the only question is where the steak sauce is or where the chimichurri sauce for something international. Yes, amateur chief is something else I am. <laughs> so, yeah, Come on, like, man. Spell <laughs> check. All right, yeah. You know what? I'm going to interrupt my own, my own reading here and just tell you, Jason, I'm having a little fun with you. Uh... We, we really appreciate that you take the time to write us these letters every week, but I'm going to ask you to do what I ask my kids to do when they do homework, and that is read it aloud to yourself before you even send it to us, because sometimes there's some run-on sentences, and sometimes there's some fragmented sentences, and sometimes there's some misspelling, and I appreciate, I really do appreciate the emails that you send us and, and the ideas that you send us, but I, I it's it's easier to read if you've done that already, so... I'm asking you as a favor. I just have one word for uh, amateur chief Jason Trenner. Enoch Chuck! <laughs> <laughs> and anybody that doesn't get that, uh, too bad. <laughs> okay. So, what is it? So, yeah, you'd very likely... you. So, yeah, very likely you'd want to guess that it actually just eat the damn thing. Hope the meds help the cat, Bill. Anyway, on to Godzilla. Seriously, why do they let Rob stick around, given how big a pain in the ass he seems to be? <laughs> Good question. I can't... can't well, can't, he's the know. grandson of uh, one of the guys on the team. Oh, anyway. so yeah, just let him in there. It's, just, it's, not, it's not like it's a high-security area. Nepotism. <laughs> right. Nepotism at its best. It's like uh, when Lee Harvey Oswald got, got shot by Jack Ruby. That was uh, part of Dennis Miller's bit. He started saying, started saying but what, what key security they had there? Hey, we got the owner of the local titty club here. Should we let him in? 
It walks right up and shoots the guy. Okay. Uh, first, he makes Red, Red Ronin useless unless he's piloting it. Thinking Red Godzilla Ronin. is his friend and more. <laughs> Thankfully for him, he is dealing with the only version that he might be correct. Any other version of Godzilla would have killed him, as those Godzillas have no friends, especially human ones. No, I don't. I think Blue Jack and Eddie would take. I kind of remember him having, like, yeah, well, maybe I'm those, thinking, maybe I'm thinking those, Gamera. What about those two little to... singing dwarf girls there? No, nah, they were with Mothra. Yeah, Mothra, I, okay. I would. You know what? I mean, Luke is the resident uh, kaiju expert, so I would ask him: Is, hey, hey, is there a movie where, where they where Godzilla befriends a, a human? Mm. I know Godzuki does. His, well, well, I don't know if they call him Godzuki in that movie, but the son of Godzilla does. Yeah, the Godzuki, I think, was a name they just used in the cartoon. And again, yeah. Luke, let me know if I'm wrong. Matthew Broderick. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Fun to see Godzilla versus a rat in the sewers, and at the end of the issue, big enough to attack the kid. Though somehow Dum Dum Dugan might just want to deal with Rob once and for all, even if the king of all monsters doesn't incinerate the annoyance. It would be. I could just see Dum Dum Dugan. Yeah, right, yeah. No, I don't think he's there with the monster. No, nothing's going on. <laughs> I, I just realized how close Dum Dum Dugan is to Rum Tum Tugger. <laughs> you know, from Cats. He's a curious cat. All right. Sorry, not singing. Next up is Steal the Indestructible Man. Well, unless in, unless it is against Eclipso. Yeah, that's what did in the version in of the character. The 90s, along with the second Wildcat from Infinity, Inc., and several more who were part of the team. Though, as per usual in comics, a bunch from that group, the Shadow Fighters, turned out to be alive. Anyway, this is the first issue of Steel's short-lived series, The Birth of a Legacy, as two Steel's grandsons are superheroes. Two of Steel's grandsons, excuse me. The first being the Detroit-era Justice League, and the second was a member of the Justice Society as Citizen Steel. And, of course, some evil dude wants the stuff the scientist had invented. Hope Hank is given something to replace his bone marrow's functions, as without those, your immune system goes to crap! (laughs) And wonder if he's able to go dancing with the ladies, as it was put in the the $6 million man. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, maybe with steel inside him, maybe he's got a permanent uh, (laughs) ability. Blue steel. If it's more than four hours, (laughs) you should contact the doctor, though. Then again, he's got a bunch of grandkids so I get, and such, so guess his junk wasn't junked by that explosion. <laughs> <laughs> or possibly replaced with the anti-immunity, whatever. The Better, crap. stronger, faster. <laughs> the, the bio-retardant. The only oh. thing that can stop steel is the DC implosion. I guess that mm. and rain. Uh, the All-Star Squadron came after Steel's series got ended. <laughs> Enjoyed the app and look forward to whatever else you pull out of the bins. All right. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate your letter, as always. And, Bill, you got the next one? Yes. Uh, let's see. And this one is from, again, it's from Russell Bragg. And it is titled... Godzilla, Steel, and more on Bill's cat. <laughs> hey, guys. Great show as always. I'm glad Bill's cat is okay. Eh, yeah, that, we'll, we'll talk about that later, maybe. <laughs> he got better, then he got a little worse, but he's better now. So, uh, Oh, have you mentioned his or her name? Uh, yes. Uh, his name is Alvin. Alvin Sparta Robinson. So, 
Sparta. Sparta. This is Sparta. Uh, I remember my first encounter with a wormy cat. It's kind of personal, Russell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. It is a gross sight and not likely to ever for. Yes, it is a gross sight and not likely to ever forget. Uh, Tennessee Tuxedo's walrus friend Chumley was voiced by voice actor Bradley Bulk. We'll uh, go with that. Yeah, that sounds good. The only other role I recognize is uh, The Year Without a Santa Claus, where he voiced Jangle the Elf. Hmm. Speaking of which, did you guys hear that uh, the voice of Yukon Cornelius just passed away? No. Yeah. Oh. I'm a Yukon fan. Yeah, me too. What else did he, the guy that did Yukon Cornelius do? That was probably his most famous thing. I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. what I, he did. A lot of like actual live action acting stuff, but nothing, oh. nothing I had recognized from. It was just one of those little you know blurbs toward the end of the news a, a night or two ago as we record this. Hmm. Oh, it was sad. Yeah. Uh, continuing on, I enjoyed Doctor Bill's fashion moment and hope it will continue to be used in the show. <laughs> on to the comics, Marvel. Godzilla, oops, I mean Godzilla 18 was presented by Dr. Bill. I know nothing about Godzilla. Never read a comic or saw a movie. Man, do you see anything? You didn't see <laughs> Thor, you haven't seen Godzilla. I think, I, 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 think might... I seem to remember an email that he didn't see the Terminator until Shh, well maybe into he's it. A sh- maybe he's a shut-in. Then he should see all sorts <laughs> of movies. lots of movies. <laughs> maybe he's one of those people who goes out. Maybe he Which kind of goes against the whole comic book reader mentality. Exactly. Oh, and speaking of Alvin, my wife just let Alvin in the room. Oh, meow. 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 Come on. <laughs> Where's the litter box? I kicked my, the door down. My food's <laughs> not in here, damn it. You put it outside. Dumb cough. <laughs> anyway. Or, or saw a movie. I might have watched the cartoon that features his featured his cousin Gazuki. No, was that it? That wasn't his cousin. I the that animated was his one. Son. That was his son, wasn't it? That's what I always Once thought. Once again, call out to Luke. Yeah, well, and that yeah, and that's where they they had the people in the ship, and they had little Gazuki, and the guy had a little pager. He had the Godzilla pager, and Godzilla would rise up, you know, like he was always under them the whole time. <laughs> Godzilla pager. Now well, that's I what it was. It like, was a button on his belt. Godzilla's <laughs> sitting in like a giant lazy boy back at the house, and the pager goes, like, "God damn it! Now what? God, what the hell? <laughs> I don't want you to do the voice of Godzilla. Come on, right now." Like goddamn Mothra again. <laughs> Want to step on those little women. I'm tired of them telling that stupid moth to fight me. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember anything about it. You did a bang up job with the play by play with the fight between Godzilla and the rat. I thought you would have called it the thriller of Godzilla, not in Manila. <laughs> <laughs> Great synopsis overall. DC Steel, the indestructible man number one, was presented by Professor Paul. And I have no idea in the middle of this email why it says this image has been removed for security. <laughs> I can only guess. What is that woman doing with that thing anyway? That's oh, that's wrong. Wait, what is that gerbil doing in there? <laughs> it's what powers steel, I guess. We've got a gerbil in there. 
And what does that midget have on his head? (laughs) The blue steel. No. Uh, I came to know a little bit about him through my All-Star Squadron collecting. I cracked up when you impersonated a goom Nazi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, do you think all comic writers have had problems with women? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's why they're comic writers. Yeah, I think all men have had problems with women. <laughs> that's true. Probably eighty to eighty-five, eighty to eighty-five percent of the females mentioned in, in comics treat their men like dirt. Um, I think a hundred percent of women treat their men like dirt in real life, though. Betty Brant, Iris West, even after she and uh, Flash were married, Carol Ferris, the pre-crisis Lois Lane. And I am sure you guys can name a whole bunch more, which <laughs> we could do a whole episode. Uh, what do, do you guys quick, think? I'm going to do a quick Google search. Every <laughs> in comics, full list. I'll get back to you on that. Okay. What do you guys think? My my ears really perked up when one of you mentioned America versus the Just Society of America. Yeah, that's my weird fetish I have with that and Doritos because that was my first Doritos exposure. <laughs> so. Now I, I look at a bag of Doritos and go, uh, especially Cool Ranch. It was, excuse me, it's my first exposure to Cool Ranch Doritos. So now when I see them, I go, ah, Just a Society of America. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, no wonder I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my favorite miniseries and snacks. I mean, uh, anyway, maybe you uh, guys can do a review of that someday. You know, it's I in the queue. Oh, really? That's oh. all I'll say about on the subject. Is, is that in the queue for a different show? Yes, it is. Okay. Oh, because I and we, we could here's just some an episode, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Here's something to make Russell uh, insanely jealous. I actually have the promo poster, the original promo poster for that series. Ooh. I'm a big fan of that particular miniseries, despite the ink job, because I don't much care for the ink job on that. Don't give yeah. away the store. I'm not giving it away. One day in yep. whatever year it is that that episode gets posted. Eventually. <laughs> it's in the queue. I think I've monopolized enough of your time, so I'll close for now. As always, I thank you for keeping me entertained at work, and I remain your humble listener, Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Uh, thank you very much, Russell. It's good to hear from you again. And All yep, right. Next one. Uh, I, I guess I've got the next one, right? I yes. So. All right. Next one is Back to the Bins, the King of the Monsters and the Indestructible Man. And this one's by our buddy Luke Giaconetti. And he says, Bin Boys. So, <laughs> hey, fellas, just wanted to give. That counts as, I don't know. Uh, bin Boys. That that sounds a little, a little. Uh, mm. It sounds like we've been thrown in the trash is what it sounds like. Either that or we're like little geisha boys or something. I don't know. <laughs> ah, oh, hello, Mr. Giaconetti. Well, good to see you. Oh, welcome home. Welcome home, sir. Yes, yes. Uh, good, good day, sir. Yes. I'm sure nobody's offended by that imitation. Don't worry. <laughs> you want me to rub your feet, Giaconetti? Yes, yes. Oh, you big Are man. Are we big following man. Dr. Jones around? <laughs> you call him Mr. Giaconetti. <laughs> no time for love, Dr. Bill. that's why you wrote the book that's why i wrote my book (laughs) oh good lord that's a way that's a way callback (laughs) he says hey fellas (laughs) boy all we did was get into the greeting and it it took us off on a tangent (laughs) didn't even get past the opener on this one 
So, hey, fellas, just want to give you a few quick thoughts on the latest episode of Back to the Bins. He says, the live-action underdog movie is one of those movies which is better uh, than it really has any right to be. I'm going to have to take your word because I couldn't believe you guys spent time talking about that. I didn't even... I didn't even acknowledge that movie came out. I'm like, really? After all these years, you, you come out it's with like an so underdog theater. movie. Oh, and it, it was live action. I'm like, what? I just, I don't know. Honestly, I mean, is it any good? Because it it's, just, it I, I wouldn't say stick it out. But yeah. by all rights, TV, it should be one it. of the worst movies mm-hmm. ever. And so based on that, Luke's comment that it's better than there's any right to be is actually true. There are some funny moments in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on paper the idea of a live action underdog sounds gro- yes it does sound grown worthy you're absolutely right but the cast pulls it all together and it just works it helps that the original underdog like Paul uh, like Paul said still holds up very well after all these years well that that was my point is like what's wrong with like the original animated version of underdog that's like classic stuff right but anyway i'll tell you i'll tell you exactly what's wrong with it if you're the movie studio you're not making a hundred million dollars on it that's what's wrong with it mm-hmm. so you say okay. we'll make the live action movie and we'll make a hundred million dollars i guess did they i don't know I don't know what they made, but I'm sure they had dreams of Academy Award nominations. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure they did. He says Peter Dinklage as Simon Barr Sinister is downright. Now, is that live action or yes. is he just. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's just wrong. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm surprised he would even agree to do that. Well, that's... it was before Game of Thrones, which so is really his breakout work, role. Is what you're saying. Okay. That was I about guess. the time he was doing Threshold, too, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Midge has got to work, and there's only so many ATM machines in the world. Right around the time, I guess, of Elf, too, which he was great in. Oh, that's right. That was him, wasn't it? Yes. Call me an Elf one more time. (laughs) He said, Uh, And Jason Lee really captured Underdog as well. Okay. So there's no need to worry. Underdog is furry. No, that's not good. That must be a quote from the movie, I guess. Yes. Uh, the Marvel Godzilla series is one of those relics of the Bronze Age, which has a mix of both the fanish delight and eye-rolling absurdity. It's a bit of, wow, Marvel did a uh, Godzilla book mixed with, wow, God, uh, Marvel did a Godzilla book. But much like the other licensed books of those uh, of this era, for good or ill, everyone seems to remember this series. For what it's worth... I am going to be covering this series over on Earth Destruction Directive once I finish up with the Shogun Warriors title. And amazingly, Marvel had both of these books going at once, including both being written by Doug Mensch and art by Herb Trimpey. And they never crossed over. Don't you hate that? I hate that. I was just thinking about this the other day with uh, with some of the titles that, uh, what's his name, um, Bill Mantlo used to work on. He used to work on all those toy properties as well and i don't specifically think specifically you think in ramen micronauts ramen micronauts why the hell did they never cross over but yeah it's one I, of those would, I guess they were two maybe maybe there were licensing issues with that as far as it being two separate companies i'm not sure if they were i don't think they were the same company yeah so they, they may have had the right to, to cross it over with the marvel properties but they may right. not have had the right to cross them over with each other with each other yeah that's true but I think I think we tackled or intend if, if we didn't I think we intended one time to tackle something like that back on Comics Monthly Monday like no brainer crossovers that for whatever reason never happened because another one that always comes to my mind you think of like 
late 80s, early 90s comic book movies and you know, comic book properties, two of the biggest ones that were crossing over with every friggin' character and title that was on the stands was Batman and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yet they never crossed over with each other. How the hell did that never happen? That seemed like, at the time anyway, such a no-brainer, but yet it never happened. It's just really odd to me. Along the same lines, I would love to see a crossover with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Daredevil, since they both, yeah. got, their, since they both got their powers from the same uh, exactly. radioactive yeah. goop. And have uh, have Miller involved somehow, writing it or doing a cover or something. You know, I mean, because that was still Prime Miller back then. Yeah, exactly. How did that never happen? Well, like Luke sums up here, he says, "Talk about a lost opportunity." Yeah, absolutely. How did that not happen? Logic dictates that such a crossover uh, would not have been possible with two licenses or licensees. He says, "But no reason Red Ronin." Uh, couldn't have popped up over in the Shoguns. Yeah, absolutely. See, I thought Red Ronin was one of the Shoguns, but I'm just showing my ignorance when I say that, I guess. Uh, I actually own all five issues of Steel. The book was a casualty of the DC implosion, which I picked up, uh, picked up after finding number two in a 33-cent bin. I've never the seen the 33-cent bin. I think he means like the three-for-a-buck bin. Yeah, I guess that's what it is, but I've never okay, seen that. Yeah, that's what I'm going to assume. <laughs> Uh, says the book is definitely a throwback uh, as if you read some of Conway's stuff in the back uh, of the later issues he apparently originally intended Steel to be set during World War II on Earth 1 so no Justice Society, no All-Stars etc. Of course this ended up not being the case as in quotes here, Commander Steel was folded into the All-Stars a little later but still I enjoyed this book Uh, it's not it's not knock it out of the park good uh and maybe i'm more prone for straightforward uh patriot character like steel but it's uh run worth reading if you like world war ii era superhero stories i will definitely piggyback on that to say yeah absolutely i i I actually like steel quite a bit uh commander steel actually had two grandsons who took on the mantle the first was hank hayward the third steel of the Justice League Detroit, who was blown to bits by one of Professor Ivo's androids in the closing days of that book. The other is Nathaniel Haywood, Citizen Steel of the Jeff Johns penned Justice Society of America. Steel had similar powers to his grandfather. Citizen Steel was uh, so super strong and impervious to sensation that his uniform was actually a containment suit which was forged around him. Again, I'm a fan, uh, but that's no surprise. I don't know if Scott missed being on this episode or not, uh, but I would have loved to have been there myself. Keep up the good work, fellas. And that, again, is from Luke, Jack, and Eddie. Thank you very much, Luke. And uh, I agree with you. I think uh, Steel is a really, really good character. And I'm uh, a fan of the latter, uh, the Citizen Steel that you mentioned, because uh, I thought uh, the uh, JSA, the Jeff John series, was really, really good. Well, yeah, and in a weird too. form of symmetry, we will know the answer to uh, <laughs> Luke's question at the end of that email as Scott reads as no Scott, no, not Scott, but as the as Mister Peepee reads the next email. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah, like I'm not going to cut that out. Uh, oh, come on! <laughs> our next email is from Little Scotty Gardner, Little Scott <laughs> H. Gardner from Florida. 
He's writing. He must have stayed up late to write us a little letter. <laughs> and it says, Dear Dr. Bill and the producer, Good show. I thoroughly enjoyed BTTB number 133. And, as always, I was sorry I couldn't be a part of it. It was fun to hear you guys speculate towards the end of the episode on what my opinion of the issues you covered would be. As usual, Paul was completely wrong. <laughs> I think, you know what we need to do for when Scott's not here, I think we need to get like a sock puppet Scott to give its opinion on the books. <laughs> what do you think of the book, Scott? Scott <laughs> sock puppet Scott? Oh, I like this one. <laughs> you picked a winner, Paul. <laughs> I'm Keep glad you're the producer. <laughs> <laughs> little scotty goes on to say and then and then we could have the chris honeywell hand puppet come in <laughs> we could just get the real chris to do that <laughs> <laughs> he'd probably come in as, for with cheap the, with the sock puppet on <laughs> while i don't believe i've ever read the specific issue bill covered i do have fond if vague memories of the tiny godzilla saga because issue number 20 is a sentimental favorite of mine. Why? Well, because I'm pretty sure it was my first exposure to, of all things, the Fantastic Four. Now, I knew who the Human Torch was from having read a well-loved hand-me-down copy of Marvel Team-Up number 39 oh, that come hung on. around you, my you grandparents' house for years. You couldn't say whip the shit? <laughs> really. It was, too. And I probably had seen the thing somewhere in comics before, too. Heck, I may have even seen Reed Richards in the funny book somewhere previously as well. But this was the first time I'd ever seen the FF with all four proper members in action together in the same book. Sounds strange, I know. But for that reason alone, I've always had fond... Me- I, I, excuse me. I've always have fond memories of issues that <laughs> Godzilla... Hey, I did it to Jason. I was in a hurry. <laughs> Silly story and questionable art and all. And I've still got the same well-worn copy I've had since I was a kid that I think I may have liberated from the local library. <laughs> Perhaps we should call the library police on you. <laughs> <laughs> what are the late fees on that, you think? <laughs> Mr. Gardner, you owe $2,000 on the issue of what? Godzilla. <laughs> Steal the Indestructible Man is something of a latter-day sentimental favorite. And this time, Paul was right in guessing that if I were to have any fondness for this character, it would be because of his association with the All-Star Squadron. That is correct. I think we need to uh, memorialize that over and over. (laughs) I do have a fondness for the character, and it is for that reason. Plus the fact that his origin is a little bit like is a little bit Captain America, a little bit Wolverine, and a lot part six million dollar man. What a wonderful combination! I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I got to agree with you on that. I like Steel and was pleased to see him become a legacy character, albeit a minor one, in post-crisis continuity. For anyone interested, Michael Bailey and myself had a great discussion and examination of the character and his unpublished final issue in episodes 37 and 38 of the Tales of the Justice Society podcast, which you can find on the TTF feed. Enjoyed it, guys. Best, little Scott H. Gardner. <laughs> now you're getting, now they're all going to think that you're talking about my son, Scotty. You have to remember yeah. that. That's no, I, no, it was it was me. When I said Scotty, I realized that, that 
people could get confused. No, this was actually Scott who's on on the show right now. <laughs> uh, and Scott followed up uh, by saying, uh, P.S., I think you should do a poll to see what other listeners think of the BGM, which I didn't know what that meant. I thought it might be something uh, dirty, but it's a <laughs> background. Big, music. giant movement. Yeah. <laughs> It just isn't working for me, sorry to say. Otherwise, I feel no guilt whatsoever missing Epps, from a creative standpoint at least, as you guys are doing a bang-up job. Thank you for that, Scott. Uh, I'm curious what everybody else thinks. I know I have a lot of fun trying to come up with songs that I think fit the books and sticking them in, or, or trying to come up with songs that I think might be amusing at certain points and sticking them in. But if people are finding it distracting or finding it to be bothersome in any way, I would want to know that. So I would be interested. Did we say what BGM meant? Yes, background music. (laughs) Okay, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't remember hearing it. You were so you were so engrossed in my own. So so raring to go with your big giant movement that you couldn't. You didn't hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it says that 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 Scott's just it it isn't working for him. (laughs) Well, okay, his big giant (laughs) movement. There's pills for that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Have you tried an enema? (laughs) <laughs> my cat has <laughs> meow <laughs> and that's it for email for this week thank you to all of our listeners who wrote in I appreciate it and I think we all appreciate it you're welcome <laughs> well everybody <laughs> <but Scott. laughs> is there a way of writing Scott so that it sounds like it's a Scottish accent Oh, stop put it. an extra O in there three O's <laughs> oh wait, no. There's only there's only one O to be. I guess you could put no because if you do, <laughs> if you do two O's and scoot, math scoot be a thing, is it? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Numbers, math, letters. Uh. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, fifteen years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal to portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. We're back. And who's got the Marvel this week? I got the Marvel this week. Why don't you give us a synopsis then? I will give us a synopsis. And you know what? I don't have anything pre-written either, so this is entirely just off the cuff. Old school, as it were. Me neither tonight. I got nothing. (laughs) Now, as it turns out, this book was selected entirely at random, but done a little bit differently this time, as uh, normally when I pick a book at random, I use my uh, random number generator. This time, I I did it very, very old-fashioned. I actually just started digging through my... uh, my back issue bins of unread comics, just kind of doing it just like I used to do as a kid, you know, just 
thumbing through looking for a cover that would just kind of grab me to go, wow, all right, yeah, that looks good. I'll go ahead and cover that. So I grabbed this one purely based on the cover. This is Amazing Spider-Man number 217. And I just really like the cover because it's Hydro-Man, who I've always liked. I think he's a very underrated Spider-Man villain. It's Hydro-Man and the Sandman team up. (laughs) At the bottom it says, here's mud in your eyes, Spidey. So it's, uh, yeah, two characters that merge together would make mud to fight Spider-Man. Uh, the, st- the story is actually credited. The title is uh, Here's Mud in Your Eye, and it's written by Denny O'Neill. Art by John Ramita Jr. and Jim Mooney, who you would think would be a very strange combination art-wise, but I kind of dig it. Uh, I'm not going to read all the rest of the credits on this. That's, all, that's the relevant. That's the who wrote it and who drew it, so... Diving right into this one, uh, Spider-Man, we pick up when we're on the rooftop of a uh, New York City building, and Spider-Man, he's not doing so good. He's seeing stars, he's holding his arm, he's got a big rip in his uh, cowl, uh, looks like he's sustained some, some sort of head wound or something, and he's just not doing so good, and he has just finished up uh, wrapping up some gunmen, it says here. Uh, this must have been at the tail end of the last issue. Not really sure exactly what's going on here, but Spider-Man's pretty whipped. And some police show up on the rooftop. Spider-Man starts to explain that, hey, I got these guys for you and everything. You know, no fee, no charge. When Hydra-Man comes out of the water tower behind Spider-Man and starts taunting him and basically says, ah, you thought I was dead, huh? Well, I just waited for it to rain so that I could reform myself and I've been hanging out in this water tower waiting to attack you. And he attacks Spider-Man. While he attacks Spider-Man, who is literally too weak to fight back, the cops open fire on Hydra-Man, and so there's a, a little bit of a fight between the cops and Hydra-Man, just long enough for Spider-Man to basically just duck out on the fight. He realizes he's outmatched and he's too weak to fight, so he just splits. He goes back, he grabs his uh, Peter Parker clothes, and he changes and instead of doing the sensible thing, if he's this whipped and this tired of just going and you know catching some Z's, he actually goes to the movies. He goes to see Halloween 2. So that, that dates this book rather nicely. By the way, this book, I forgot to mention that. This book is dated June 1981. It's going back quite a number of years. Uh, by the way, also to kind of date the era on this, he runs into uh, Deb Whitman, who I'm not sure he had dated yet at this point, but she factors into uh, Spider-Man comics of this era quite a bit. So she wasn't batshit crazy yet? Not yet, not yet. But, I, you know, I always liked Deb Whitman. I always, uh, I always had a fondness for her. Of course, this is just prior to my era of Spider-Man. I would have kind of discovered Spider-Man and started collecting Spider-Man just a little bit past this issue as a kid. Um, more when uh, when Stern was writing it. We check in with uh, the Sandman, and he's hanging out at this bar called Duffy's, who I think we've seen this place in Marvel before, or maybe, maybe this is, establishes it and we see it later or something, but it just seemed to ring a bell with me. Anyway, he's hanging out in this bar, and he's kind of hitting on this uh, bar floozy when Hydra-Man shows up, and it turns out that this is Hydra-Man's girl, and he's all pissed off about it. So Sandman and Hydra-Man, despite what the cover says about them teaming up, that's not really the case. Actually, 
kind of a rivalry breaks out between the two of them over this. She kind of looks like an old used up bar whore or something. She's not drawn particularly attractive or especially if you look at her at the bottom of page 11 right there, she looks like she could be their grandmother or something. I'm like, really, you guys? She looks a little like Ethel Mertz. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, she does. So, you know, (laughs) they bought, you know, for one, they batter the hell out of each other. And then it gets to a point where like Sandman stealing a TV out of a window, you know, to try to impress her with a gift and, uh, Hydra Man steals the mink off a passerby to present her with a with like a nicer g- and it's just weird. It's so bizarre. They're they're you know these two guys are, are trying to one up each other over this bar whore. It's just, it's really weird. So Peter Parker does eventually go back to his apartment and gets no sleep at all because one of his asshole neighbors turns out to be this like midget hillbilly folk singer or it's it's really weird so he doesn't get any sleep so he finally goes to the daily bugle um and i'm not even sure why he goes there i don't know if he's looking for a story or if he just goes to pour his heart out to this guy that he's talking to about what a jerk his neighbors i don't know what's going on here but the guy just happens to mention him. To, oh, by the way, did you hear about the fight between Hydro Man and Sandman? And Peter, of course, you know, these are two of his bad guys. So instantly his ears perk up and he's like, no, tell me more. So the guy tells him, you know, where it was and what took place. So remember, Peter was too exhausted to fight Hydro Man alone. Never got any sleep. So what does he do? And it's raining outside. This big storm's just starting to brew. So what does he do? He changes to Spider-Man to go out to find both of these guys. And, you know, you know a fight's going to break out. So it just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Like, if you weren't rested and well enough to fight Hydra-Man by himself, why the hell would you go spoiling for a fight with both of these guys together? Either one of them alone is more than a match for Spider-Man. But that's what he does. He goes out. I guess it's that whole sense of responsibility thing or whatever. I don't know. It's it's just kind of strange. Well, so first he, he has to go to Duffy's bar and meet the Watcher, I guess. The watcher. <laughs> yeah, the, the Watcher the has fallen on hard times because he's actually mopping the floor at Duffy's bar. So it's, it's sad to see, it, you know, when 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 these guys are kind of, you know, on the, on the you know, uh, it's just sad. So, yeah, Spider-Man does stop by Duffy's just to kind of get pointers from the uh, the guy that's mopping up there on, uh, hey, you know, did you happen to see which way they went kind of thing? And he tells him that, well, you know, they were both hanging with Flo or whatever the hell her name was. So Sadie, 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 Frickett? that was it. Sadie Frickett. <laughs> Sadie Frickett. Yeah. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? Uh so he goes to Sadie's apartment where, of course, he finds uh, Hydra Man and Sp- uh, Sandman are still fighting over this woman. He comes in right in the middle of it. And it's weird because they alternately hit on him and then go back to hitting on each other. And then they hit on him and then they hit on each other. They never really team up like the cover says. They do kind of briefly when the cops show up just long enough to you know, make the cops go away essentially. But there's this, this long running battle that eventually spills out to the docks and Spider-Man gets smart and he does the classic move where 
each of the bad guys is coming at him at the same time. And they're both intent on pummeling him. So Spider-Man just kind of ducks, rolls out of the way. And both Hydra-Man and Sandman go off the dock and into the drink. Spider-Man at this point is completely exhausted. It's all he can do to just kind of drag his sorry ass away from the edge of the dock and save himself. And he realizes that the storm has really fully kicked into gear now. And he's just completely whipped. And he's thinking to himself that he's going to have to call the Coast Guard and see if they'll come and be able to search for Sandman and and Hydra-Man and pull them out of the drink. And at the very end of the issue, Spider-Man's spider sense starts to go off again. And he turns and there's this really cool final page. It's the entire page. It's a splash page. Spider-Man turns and looks and this creature has shambled out of the water and up onto the dock. Now, this creature is supposed to, I'm sure it's supposed to look like a mud man. It's supposed to look like a combination of the Sandman and the Hydra Man. Actually, what I think it more looks like is a combination of the thing and that electricity creature that the Hulk used to fight, Zaz or whatever his name. Yeah, that's what I yeah. think it looks more like. But either way... It's a really cool-looking creature. It's very neat-looking. Except and it has a li- it has a little bit of the Sandman shirt on its back. It it does. It has <laughs> it has like the Sandman shirt. It has wrinkly skin. I think that again. I think it's very uh, reminiscent of the Thing, and uh, and it's got like water coming off it in sheets that almost makes it look like it's sweating profusely or something. It's covered. It's, really, it's, it's like a <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. Just this giant mud-like creature. Um, this is really cool, and I'm I'm very curious where exactly this went. I didn't think it was a particularly great issue, but again, I'm reading it for the very first time. What this has got to be 30, 33 years, or almost thirty-three years after the fact. I probably would have loved this if I'd read it as a kid, because the Spider-Man books that I have read from this era I, I think rather a lot of so i probably would think just as much of this but like it wasn't bad it was just the pacing was a little bit weird and spider-man's motivations are just bizarre he never gets any sleep he's too tired to fight the villain in the beginning of the book yet he i don't know rallies or something to go chase both of these guys down and get his ass beat, but good <laughs> at the dock at the end of the story. So it's just kind of strange, but I'm curious to see how it resolves. Cause I have no idea. And, uh, plus, plus sexy Sadie knocks him on the head with a, with a lamp or something. <laughs> yeah, she does. Well, he was already kind of out of it and kind of groggy and everything. And then, uh, well, what it is, is, you know, it, this is one of these things that happens to Spider-Man, uh, you know, every time, he doesn't listen to his spider sense. You know, after a while, you would think he would learn, but I've seen this happen to him quite a lot in comics over the years where his spider sense goes off and he doesn't listen. He ignores it and gets into trouble, and that's just what happens. He's he's fighting both Hydra-Man and Sandman. He can see them, so he ignores his spider sense when it goes off, and it goes off because she's behind him, you know, sneaking up behind him, and she clocks him with a vase. Okay, now isn't now I'm, I don't mean to be a nitpicker, but I am going to be on this one. To me, his spider sense has always been a vague, 
oh, I need oh, the yeah. duck now. Right. Or I need to I need to move out of the way or something's coming at me. The next to last page is oh my spider sense is tingling. Something's moving behind me, rising from the bay. That's right. pretty specific. <laughs> A little too specific. Well his his yeah, you're I mean you're absolutely right with his spider sense because sometimes his spider sense is very akin to Daredevil's radar sense. Yeah. And then other times it functions as um, like almost like clairvoyance or like a um, like predict you know like like a predictor of the future because though precognition precognition that's the word I was looking yeah. for because you know in uh, in the crossover the second crossover with Superman it keeps going off every time he swings over this particular construction site and so it's basically telling him evil's afoot here it's almost like he's sensing the dark side or something and that's really Mm -hmm. to me that's very weird like if you buy into spider sense at all how does that work i can see the thing with working to a degree of giving you like a like a 360 peripheral danger sense but how does that work when you're just swinging past someplace that it, it it can actually tell you Something bad's happening here underground. I mean, hot, come yeah. on. And then he I doesn't. Mean, he doesn't totally trust it, which kind of makes it like the ESP version of Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it works when you're doing your taxes. Ooh, no, wait a minute. I can't put <laughs> that deduction. That. <laughs> oh my! My tax sense says no. Am I out of my mind, or is Iron Man fighting a mechanical version of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters in that uh, Hostess ad? Oh, I don't have the Hostess ad. Oh, you don't? No. no. Yeah, it's weird. These things are freaky looking. I don't know what they're supposed to be. Dude, Sigmund. (laughs) (laughs) And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what is Sigmund's brothers? Do you want to give this a grade? Hmm, let me see. Story-wise, now, I like Denny O'Neill, but, you know, it's funny. I've I've been on a read-through recently of Neil Adams' work, Neil Adams, you know, as an artist, and as I got to the classic stuff of Neil Adams written by Denny O'Neill, my are opinion of that Green stuff... Are we talking Green Lantern, Green Arrow, or are we talking I actually, I didn't uh, do Batman? That. No. Just Batman. Yeah, I didn't reread the uh, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff. Just the Batman. I, I, this is going to sound so blasphemous to so many people, but I don't think it's as great as it's been lauded to be over all these years. And maybe that's just me, you know, 45 years old, reading something that thought it was thrilling as a kid. And art-wise, it's still thrilling. But boy, some of those stories are they're rather infantile. They really are. And I think this is to a large degree, too. Um, It's not bad. It's just, of course, I'm comparing it to the Stern stuff that that follows right on the heels of this. I mean, not long from now, Stern comes on as the writer. And I think, just my opinion, of course, but I think that's Spider-Man's finest hour is when Roger Stern was the writer. Just some great, great stuff. I think he had a real feel for the character. I'm not so sure about Denny O'Neill here. He's hitting all the beats, 
But it's like having all the the pieces, but just still not being able to quite put the puzzle together. And that's how this feels to me. It's hitting a lot of the beats that you want in a Spider-Man book, but just not necessarily making it right. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. Art is the tough one for me to to rate here because I've been really harsh. I've had some harsh things to say about john ramita jr but that's you know present day or latter day john ramita jr i I think somewhere along the line by attempting to branch out and and distinguish himself from everybody else in comics particularly his dad i think his art style i think he hurt his art style too it's it's at a point now where i just find it just I, i can't look at it but this era i like quite a bit but he's teamed up here with jim mooney who, again, I really like, but his art style, I will always associate Jim Mooney with Silver Age Supergirl. So it has this really weird look. It's a cross between, um, you know, John Romita Jr. of this era, I always associate with Iron Man when when John Romita Jr. was working with uh, Bob Layton. I, I love that art. That's some great, great stuff. So it's like a combination of that and, again, you know, Silver Age Supergirl. So it's a very strange look, particularly with a lot of the faces. But I, I don't dislike it either. Um, I mean, this this is kind of my era of Spider-Man stuff. So I, I will give it a, a, a pretty wide pass. So I don't know. I, I would say story-wise, I would give it a, I don't know, it's a C. It's average. It's not it's not great. It's not terrible. It's a, it's an average Spider-Man story. Art-wise, I don't know. Maybe like a like a C plus, B minus type of thing. It wasn't too bad. And then you know the overall story. I'd say I, I don't know B because it was fun. It was inter- if nothing else, it was a lot of fun. I like Hydra Man. I wish they would use him more. Um, I, I realize. I think I'm almost positive i'm like the only human being on the planet who really enjoys the film spider-man 3 if they had done a fourth one in the in the raimi series i would have liked hydra man to have been one of the villains in that i I would love to see that character realized on the big screen as a as a movie villain for spider-man i think that'd be very interesting because he's one of the villains that they use in the uh, the ride at Universal. And I get a kick out of that sequence. I think it's a lot of fun. Because I just think Hydra Man's a neat idea. But this was fun because it took, you know, two polar opposite kind of villains. You know, one made of sand, one made of water. Puts them both together. I'm very curious for the next issue, you know, how much of a threat really is Mudman. It's, it's an interesting idea anyway. Mr. Clean that, could take care of him. <laughs> That's pretty much all I got on this. It was fun. It was interesting. Yeah, I tend to agree with you that you know overall it's kind of you know more or less average, uh, yeah. which is not to, not to say it's bad. Uh, it, it's just you know it's it's a you know an okay story. I, I agree that it's paced in a strange way. It just seems I don't know. It doesn't seem to flow. No. Uh, the artwork in it, I, I like the storytelling in the artwork. I'm not crazy about the way the inking is done on it. Uh, I do kind of like the fact that, you know, you get two basically not leading men type villains who, who are in a dingy bar and that 
the girl that they're fighting over isn't a hot chick because a hot chick probably wouldn't be hanging out at that bar. Uh, right. so, so I kind of I kind of <laughs> like that. Uh, it's funny, like her look. You know, I said there's the one shot where she looks like Ethel Mertz. Uh, there's another one at the bottom of page 15. She looks. I think she looks like Edith Bunker. And uh, <laughs> and and then there's another one just when she's gonna hit Spider Man with the uh, the lamp. Uh, I think she looks like uh, Mrs. Garrett. So she's she's all over the map with you know a lot of unattractive TV women. Um, but then on page seven, she I mean, well, what is it? Of uh, yeah, she actually looks in the middle panel. She's somewhat attractive in that one panel. Mm-hmm, that's because you've been only... drinking at Duffy's. You drink enough at Duffy's, and she looks. But then in the one right underneath that, she looks like there looks like there's two men hugging there. There, (laughs) she looks like a burly man. (laughs) It's a man, baby. The the artwork. I mean, the artwork combo almost seems adequate until you get to that final splash page, and I think that's that's a real standout image. That that could be a poster. That's that's really well done, and 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 the image of spider-man in that to me is very reminiscent of jr senior yes and how he would draw spider-man and he happens to be my favorite artist of all time so i, I could never have a problem with that uh i don't care for the way the cover is inked oh that's yeah it's Al- milgram that's milgram mm-hmm. Mil- yeah. milgram's artwork i've always felt is very pedestrian and i think his inking on the cover follows that up. I think it's a pretty dynamic pose and I think a well 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 inked version of it would be a very cool cover. Uh but I don't like the way it is on this. I think one of the Spider-Man's doing that thing where he's turning his head between two people so fast that it makes it look like he has two heads. I think that's the inker's fault. I think one of them needs to be like a like a ghostly after image. So that you can tell, no, this character does not really have two heads. Because I think when they do things like this, they forget that not everybody speaks comic book. This is somebody, potentially, this is somebody's very first comic that they're ever going to pick up. And are they going to pick it up if they look at this and go, who's this dude with two heads? I don't want to read that. So I don't think they did themselves any favors by not making it a little more clear in the in that one pose, exactly what is happening here. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you can't escape the irony of the end of the story, though, that both of these guys that were so intent on merging with the ugly bar floozy end up merging with each other <laughs> at the <laughs> yeah. end of the story. I like the fact that they didn't get along. They didn't just automatically say, hey, let's team up and get Spider-Man. Right, uh, you know, the, it was just circumstances that kind of put them together. Right. Uh, I don't care for, and I think it's a mischaracterization of Spider-Man, the fact that while the police are shooting at Hydra Man and the bullets are clearly going through him and not hurt, not hurting him in the slightest, Spider-Man runs and leaves the police in danger. That doesn't fit oh, his yeah, character. You know, Spider-Man had, would not do that. I hadn't even thought. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Spider-Man wouldn't do that because he would realize that Hydra Man is too big a threat for ordinary cops with you know nothing but handguns that aren't hurting him and and, and i don't care good... how weak he is he would not just leave because he right. they could end up dead yeah that's a good yeah. point i hadn't thought of you're absolutely right 
Well, he does now, say, though, on that next panel, he does say, I hate to split like that. He says, it was just postponing the inevitable confrontation. He says, but I was in no condition to fight. But no, I... Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, exhausted or not, I don't think he would leave those cops in danger. If anything else, he'd grab them by the scruff of the neck and you know swing off with them or something like you know swing them to safety or something. Yeah, that would be. I'd have no problem with that. He's not somebody who has to have confrontation, but he is somebody who has that deep feeling of responsibility who would never run while somebody else is in danger. Right. Did <laughs> you just notice this? <laughs> Page six. Fourth panel, do you see the window in, or the uh, note in the window of the bar? Ladies invited. Ladies. <laughs> I get a kick out of that. That's why I, I didn't even notice that before. That's a stir. Ladies. I guess the I guess the watcher likes women to stop by. Otherwise, it is a total sausage fest in this uh, <laughs> here. She's the only one. And she might be a guy in drag for all we know. Oh. That's, that's the ironic ending of the next issue. They get unmerced <laughs> only to find out that the woman they've both been fighting over is actually a dude. Well, Hydra-Man does sh- say when he, he in that same panel where it says la- ladies invited, this is where Sadie hangs out when she ain't sleeping. <laughs> sleeping around I guess that's all she does she's awake she's at the bar alright yeah this is an average book for me too uh, um, I was surprised seeing that this was John Romano uh, blah, 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 JR because um, right. you mentioned um, him with Layton and that actually goes back to my first appearance on, on the bins uh, was I did Iron Man 150 with the the right. Iron Man and Doctor Doom, and, and we had talked about that art then. And this really looks a lot different, and I well, I don't I don't I'm like sorry. it as much as what was in that Iron Man issue. But I, I, I think, think when Layton was inking Ramita, he was very, and I I don't mean this in a bad way because I think the artwork is beautiful in those issues. But I think he was very heavy-handed with his own style over Ramita's layouts. Mm. I think the same thing's happening here. I I agree with you, and I think the same thing's happening here. I think I love that art so much in the Iron Man stuff because I think more of Leighton is shining through than J.R.J.R. himself. But I think that's why the art looks like it takes a step down here because the same exact thing is happening. I think there's more Mooney shining through here than there is Ramita. Yeah, but if you, I, if you look at, at the J.R. Jr. Iron Man books... And compare that to the Bob Layton Hercules books, the style looks almost identical. Exactly. Which, which tells you how heavy of a hand that Layton had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then and then the last spas uh, spas spas plage. The last eh? splash plage whatever. The last picture. The last <laughs> picture is nice. I have time. Let's go to next book. <laughs> what about the last splash page, Bill? The last splash page is good. Feel tired. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I guess that's the call to go to the DC book. Uh, And that is mine. And I picked Elongated Man number one. And I'm troubled by the fact that in my mind, I have a very bad habit of thinking Elongated Man. And I don't know why. Elongated. Because I don't even think that's a word. But for some reason. That sounds painful. Yes. 
but it's Elongated Man, number one, which is the first issue of a four-issue miniseries uh, that came out in January of 1992, and the cover price is $1, and the cover is by Mike Parabek, and it's inked by Ty Templeton. Shows a map of Europe with a photo on top of elongated man in a fight, elongated man in a fight, <laughs> with uh, as Sue, which is his wife, for anybody who doesn't know, standing at the fore, and she's got a puss on her face and her arms folded, and she's in formal wear. From the look of her, she's saying, "Do you really have to do this now?" And the cover gives us a pretty good indication of what we should inspect inside the book. Uh, the story is titled Europe 1992 Part 1 Concord to Discord. Uh, I don't know if the if it was meant to uh, bring up this image, but in my mind, I saw Europe 92, and I thought of Grateful Dead's album Europe 72, their concert album, and I, I have no idea if that's what uh, Gerard Jones was thinking when he titled the story, but that's what came to my mind. As I just said, the story's written by Gerard Jones. It's penciled by Mike Parabek, inked by Ty Templeton, lettered by Bob Panaha, colored by Rick Taylor, and edited by Brian Augustine. The story opens with a splash page with the villain Copperhead heading towards the reader and elongated man in the back giving chase and calling out for the police. Uh, we know we're in Paris because the Eiffel Tower is right behind them. And the elongated man is yelling, yelling in English, but lamenting that he should have spoken in French. Ralph starts bragging, and Copperhead turns and attacks him. Sue turns the corner wearing a hoochie outfit, and finds, and flings her beret flizz, frisbee style at Copperhead, where it attacks him as if he's Frank Drebin. And at that point, Ralph lands a clean punch, and Copperhead is surrounded by the local gendarmes. Warp, who is a member of the Brotherhood of Evil and the Society of Sin, who is a teleporter, teleports in and then teleports out with Copperhead, and Ralph declares that he smells a mystery. And basically, as Elongated Man always does, his nose twitches when he smells a mystery. At that, Sue grabs Ralph, walking in a very awkward manner in the way it's drawn, and says that it's time to get ready for a diplomatic banquet that night. Sue puts on a fancy evening gown complete with long white gloves and Ralph puts on a purple tuxedo. They show, they show up at the banquet where they're greeted by a somewhat overbearing American ambassador. And so as they mingle, Ralph is being outgoing and Sue is being kind of bitchy and walks off where she meets the Archduke of Mordora. He charms her until he suggests that her marriage to Ralph was the result of youthful indiscretion and she storms off again. At this point, a giant snail bursts through the wall, and on it is a costume villain whose name is La Escargot. <laughs> he quickly sprays some type of liquid on a Belgium, the Belgium ambassador, and Ralph tries to catch La Escargot, but he, he is wearing... He's on like a giant snail shell, but he's wearing an outfit where he looks like a big slug, and uh, he's too slimy for Ralph to grip. And Ralph basically proves ineffective in his efforts to cre to catch La Escargot. If you haven't noticed, I like saying La Escargot. The Archduke who uh, we met earlier and was kind of being dicky to Sue uh, uses some type of mental power to su subdue La Escargot and catches him with relative ease. Sure he doesn't use salt? <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, I'll cross that joke off my list. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, it turns out that the Belgium ambassador that he sprayed uh, is dead from the attack. And at this point, another diplomat who looks like Mon- Uncle Moneybags from Monopoly tells everyone to keep calm. But Ralph is pondering how various events are tied together. And at this point, for reasons that escape me, we meet the Italian diplomat, who we're told is a former adult film star. <laughs> I have well, you to... don't... Well, What's... that would be... Because wasn't there... Uh... There wasn't a... Uh... Italian adult film star that wasn't she in the the government? Wasn't she in, voted in real in? life? You're talking about in real life, yeah. I'm I don't pretty know. sure. I don't know. Uh, world history, ah, who cares? <laughs> really, I'm talking comics here, man. Ponderous so, man. But I, I have to assume that her character is going to play some role in the later issues, but in this one, they just basically introduce her and then go off. And at that point, the Archduke apologizes to Sue. And invites her and Ralph to come to his land of Medora. Ralph and Sue leave the party, and we next join them in their hotel room, where Ralph looks exhausted, and I might speculate that it has something to do with the sexy teddy that Sue is wearing at this point. Anyway, they're, uh, they seem to be getting along fine, and it seems that the... Is that a teddy or a camisole? Whoops, let's look. Never mind. <laughs> is that Bill's fashion moment for this show? <laughs> Bill, why don't you tell us the difference between a teddy and a camisole? Uh, <laughs> well, one fits me better than the other. <laughs> cut I'll, to an image I'll, of Bill wearing a, wearing a teddy sitting in front of No, the don't cut to that image. <laughs> Actually, is it one a one piece and the other one's a two piece? I don't know. I'm guessing. So, anyway, at, at this point in the story, although they seem to be getting along really well... The Archduke has sown some seeds of doubt in Sue, and she's appearing troubled. And the issue sends with. I think and... he wants to sow some seeds in Sue. I, I oh, think well, based cool. on how she looks in that outfit, I don't blame him. Sowing the seeds of love. <laughs> the seeds of love. And he, but basically, the issue ends at that point with her saying that she wants to go on a trip to Medora, which means she's looking to get some Archduke inside of her. Mm hmm. <laughs> And that's the end of the first issue of the series. Uh, I think you get basically exactly what you expect with this issue. Although, you know, except for the fact that the Belgian ambassador got killed. It's a pretty lighthearted story. And uh, I, th- I thought the cover uh, did a good job of, of giving you an idea of exactly what to expect inside. Uh, I like I like the pacing in the story. I, uh, I think it, it, there is... Some mysterious aspects of it with the, uh, what's his name, Copperhead at the beginning and, and how uh, Warp comes in and takes him out. And then, you know, what's going on with that and how the uh, Le Escargot fits into it or what the Archduke of Medora's ultimate agenda is. There's a lot, lot to be determined while you're getting a pretty good story it opens the door to what they're going to do in the next three issues, uh, all in a, a fairly lighthearted fashion. Uh, I like the Mike Parabek art. I think uh, he did a nice job of both the layouts and the uh, the individual storytelling and, and the uh, just the overall artwork. Especially, I like the uh, splash page at the very beginning of the story. I really like that shot. Um Overall, I would probably give this a C plus or a B minus, somewhere in that range. 
but I think, you know, it's, I never read it before and I've never read the follow-up issues, but I, I enjoyed it and it made me want to stick with it and read the other three. Had you guys yeah. ever, ever read this? No, no. It's, I, it's pretty lighthearted. It's, you know, it seems like a fun, you know, it's a fun story. It's got a little bit of mystery. You got, uh, yeah, I remember Warp from um, the first time I'd seen Warp was with oh, the Brotherhood of Blood. Brotherhood. Way back, way, oh, way back in Titans. Yes. Right, Mark Wolfman, yeah. George, uh, George Perez. So, yeah, that's that's where I've seen Warp from before. Copperhead, I almost thought that was, wasn't there a Cobra character in DC? I almost thought that's who that was. I didn't realize he was called Copperhead. Two two different villains. Two different, yeah. Yeah. You know what's really funny is that I almost did. Um, hang on, let me grab it real real quick. I almost did Amazing Spider Man two thirty one, which is Spider Man fighting Cobra by JRJR, but written by Roger Stern, and. It was just it was between that and the one that I actually did review. Now I kind of wish I'd done two thirty one because for one I'm sure it's a better story, but also uh, that's my impression of Cobra is that he's basically a combination of DC's Cobra and this character uh, Copperhead. They, they Copperhead and Marvel's Cobra are almost the same character. It's really funny, you know, because they have the whole, you know cartilage as opposed to bone so they can slither and slink through tight spaces type of gig going on and squeeze people to death and all that sort of thing it's it's pretty cool i just like that power set i think is interesting yeah i do too i think i think copperhead is has is a a better character design though i like his costume better better than marvel's cobra yes marvel's Hmm. cobras you know your, your 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 typical 60s Design where you have to put in some green and purple. That's true. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. I just I like the scaly look to Copperhead. I like the uh, like the claws. I, again, I'm 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 on the uh, splash page right now, and I'm just looking at him, and I, I think he's a, a compelling looking villain. Yeah. I uh, I have long been a huge fan of Mike Parabek. Uh, he's he's on my list of completely underappreciated artists. I, I think he was completely unappreciated in his time, and uh, and I miss him a lot. I you know he he died very young. He died. Oh gosh, what year was that? I want to say like ninety three or thereabouts. He's he's been dead quite a long time now, but a hell of an artist. And he and Ty Templeton, the the inker on this, they both did some just fantastic work on um, Batman. You know the uh, the tie-in comics that were related to Batman the animated series. Some really solid stuff. Um, I'm not much for the elongated man. I mean, I like the character and everything. I didn't think that I had ever read this issue before, but then I got to the part where Sue was talking to that ambassador and that scene seemed very familiar to me. So either I've read this before or that same plot's been used in a different comic, one of the two, but you get to the end of this, the, the whole scene at the very end of this first issue with Ralph and Sue back in their hotel room. And not only do I really like the dialogue, 
and I like the art, but she is just a knockout as drawn by Parabek. I mean, she's very sexy. Um, he really captures a feel for like the, uh, I don't want to put this. She's, she's has like a simple natural beauty, just like a natural femininity. She's not trying to be sexy. She's not trying to be, um, you know, like a, like a sex pot or a model. It's just by her just being, a woman and just being, uh, you know, naturally feminine, the different poses and, and everything, the way she's standing and the way she's relating to him in that outfit, she's just like, wow. You know, sure, you, you draw very a bang. attractive. <laughs> That's what you're saying. <laughs> but she, uh, I, I, he, I mean, he really does some solid art. I do get a kick out of like every panel that they could possibly squeeze the Eiffel Tower into. It's there. I just get it. I get such a kick out because they do the same thing. If this were England, then every time you look out the window, Big Ben is going to be out the window. So I, just, I do get a kick out of that. How many Eiffel Tower sites we got? One. <laughs> There's a bunch. Now just just to well well Bill Two. counts for you all. Uh, I'm just going <laughs> to touch on the art a little bit more because I really I, I totally agree with you. I, I start off with the splash page, which I think is really really good. I love the perspective that he adds to it. Uh, how how Copperhead's coming towards you, and if you look the way the street is angled and and it's it's almost looking slightly askew and all. I just think it's laid out beautifully, and I really. Mm-hmm. I, not only do I love the layout to it, but I like the individual renderings and, and the detail to the Eiffel Tower in, in the background and everything, the the way the cobblestones lay, everything about it I really, really like. Uh, and and I, I like the way the artwork kind of changes throughout the, <laughs> throughout the book without, without it being startling. Uh, right. but, but you go from an image like that, which is pretty seriously drawn and, and pretty uh, detailed, to some later images that are almost comical in the way that they're drawn and, and much more simplistic in, in the drawing. Uh, in particular, I, I, I like this shot where, uh, where Ralph tries to grab Leia Scargot and he just slimes his way into the air because you know, he can't grip him. Uh, right. You know, but it, it couldn't contrast that first page more, and yet it's not startling in the contrast. So it it just plays really, really well. I agree, and and I agree with you totally. She she really is sexy in those last few pages. Mm-hmm. And 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 I like the way she's looking really sexy, and Ralph is looking exhausted because he apparently also thought she looked sexy. <laughs> <laughs> And the Italian lady is Trampolina. Because <laughs> she's a tramp, and they use her as a trampolina. Oh, guys like to bounce off of her. Whoops. Yeah, I, I, I like I said, there's no apparent reason why they give her such a spotlight in this issue. But perhaps in the next three issues, it becomes more clear. Yeah, maybe she tries to seduce Ralph, if I had to guess. Or maybe she's somehow in a league with the Archduke. Maybe she's uh, who's the uh, who's the lady with the uh, in the Society of Sin? Oh, Madame Rouge. 
Yeah. I take it she's red. <laughs> Got a rouge. Oh. Mm. Oh, oh, she has like a panther as a pet. I just noticed that. Yes, yes, it just kind of blends a little bit there if you're not looking yeah. closely. They could have dropped that twitching nose thing at any point, though, in the the history of the elongated man. I never liked that. It just totally freaks me out. Like, yeah, stop it. You expect a booger to come flying across the room. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. Would a twitching nose like that make you popular with the ladies, though, you think? Maybe. Maybe, maybe it helps... Uh... <laughs> Maybe it helps him with Sue. Okay. This is getting too close. <laughs> this is getting too close to that Avengers uh, one that Scott wasn't here for with the whole Hank and. Uh, oh yeah, that's that's exactly what I was Janet. just thinking of. Uh, so, Bill, you have the wild card book this week. Yes, and I am here to piss Scott Gardner off. No, no, no. Mission accomplished. No. I was, I too was not a, I had my reservations about the last Star Trek movie. And this book, as it is titled at the top, is inspired by Star Trek Into Darkness. And I am also breaking with protocol and procedure and everything else in that I am doing a brand new book and not a back to the bins, a bin book. Although in about a month or so, it could be in a bin, you know, in a <laughs> In a back issue bin or in a shredder, depending if Scott owned it. But I was the only reason I really wanted to look at this is because when I saw, when I watched Star Trek Into Darkness, although I was a little pissed off that they used Khan because I thought we had a perfectly good Star Trek movie with Khan in it already, and I didn't see the point of going back and reusing a character. And if you're going to reboot a whole universe, write your own goddamn stories. But that's. That was a different podcast. Go listen to our roundtable discussion on that. But I was still kind of interested in how that con differed. What was different in his backstory compared to the one we knew from the original timeline. And that that is what this series starts to go into. Starts to expand on Khan's back history, which could even be the same in because uh, I've read some of I think it, uh, Scott have you read some of the um, con books? Um, oh, who was it? Greg is it Greg Cox? Yeah, I think did, it is. Yeah, I, I, think I, it, I read. Yeah, I it, it, it was a trilogy of books. I read them. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I've read the last one. I remember the first one had Gary Seven in right. it. Yeah, talked about when he was leaving Earth. Um, yeah. So, but none of that from I've I've read the two other issues after this that kind of goes were... in. There were three. It was the first two were set prior to Khan leaving the Earth, you know, prior to Space Seed, essentially. Prior, it was basically, um, what are they called? Yeah. The eugenics his, wars, I think. Yeah, it, it was, was his rise setting, to power. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the books were called The Rise and Fall of Khan and Ian yeah, Singh. That was it. Yeah. And, and then, then I think the last one was, was called set, To Reign in Hell. Yeah, it was set after Kirk exiles him and his people to SETI Alpha, whatever the hell one they're on, five which, or which one they SETI Alpha? Alpha five. That's right. <laughs> that one I did not finish. I started it, and um, sad to say, I just found it was really boring, and I never did finish it. Mm. Well, anyway, this talks about the back history of the con in this universe. And it is by IDW, and this came out in October of this year. 
And no, uh, no, no, no. What? Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It came out it, in the future, did it? <laughs> <laughs> it came out in October of last year. October 2013. Sorry. I guess if I'm going to do a recent book, I should get what year it, uh, it, it came out in. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> and it is entitled Star Trek Con, and I'm doing episode, uh, episode issue number one. And on our uh, front main cover that they released, it's basically uh, shots of uh, Benedict Cumberbatch um, in his out- various outfits that he had during... Uh, the Star Trek Into Darkness movie. Uh, one of them is like a main headshot, another one with him running towards you, and like a helix woven in with a fiery background. And then there's a, like a second cover is a photo cover, and then there's a third one, but it's more 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 of the same. And it's written by Mike Johnson, story consulted Robert Orchi, which uh, I believe uh, Chris Honeywell's ears just perked up, and he's now gone into a fit of rage. And Pencils and Inks are by David Messina on the present day um, uh, parts of the story. And Pencils are by Claudia Balboni on the flashbacks. Inks flashbacks are Maria Castel... Help me out. Help, help me out here, Paul. Castelvetro? That's what I would Castelvetro? say. In vitro. Yeah, in vitro. <laughs> Colors by Claudia Scarlet Gothica. Scarlet Gothica. <laughs> They're all silent. I pronounce it however I want. Letters by Neil. You... Patrick Harris. You... <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Yo. Yuotaki. And edits by Sarah Gatos. All right. Now that we're past the names, let's get to the story. Man. All right, we open our story is in uh, Stardate 2259.246, which means absolutely nothing to us. I don't know if that's supposed to be the year 2259, because back when I was a younger geek, I used to know Stardates, and now I just don't care. So we open with a trial, and um, basically they are calling to order. Um, and this takes place after the movie, and they're going to they, they want to find out uh, it's, it's due to the massive... Um, this case is going to fall under the Federation's jurisdiction and not Starfleet because of the massive deaths that was inflicted on the population and all the property destruction. However, they are going to have Captain Kirk at the trial along with Spock. And we get to see our old friend, although here this would be the first time we've seen him, but if you've seen the original episodes, you would recognize Sam Cogley, who represented Kirk in the is it the, the original episode series Court Martial court-martial with, mm-hmm. with ben finney when it was yep. uh, believed to have uh, kirk was believed to have jettisoned ben finney off the ship <laughs> he was flushed but he was not but that again is another go to the true two true freaks star trek monthly monday backlog and find that episode there so he is going to be uh on in this case instead of being on the defense he's going to be on the prosecution and kirk and spock are his counsels to assist in the case and they bring forth the defendant into the uh courtroom and he is under armed guard heavy heavily armed armed guard and we find he states his name as conned and he well not conned con and he rejects the authority of this court and of course we have a in restraint a uh, benedict cumberbatch con 
And of course, the court says, well, we don't care if you don't recognize uh, the authority. We're still going to try you. How do you plead? I plead innocent. Snicker, snicker. Yeah, right. So they asked Mr. Collins to begin, to which point he defers to Captain Kirk. And Kirk begins to lay down uh, basically a quick retelling of what happened in Star Trek Into Darkness, how Starfleet had uh, co-opted uh, or Admiral Marcus had created Section 31 and was using Khan to create weapons for him. And that this man claims to be the Khan Noonien Singh from the 20th century. However, he looks nothing like Khan, and they um, ask him directly, well, uh, who is telling the truth and who are you? So, as the story continues, Khan begins to tell us, he says, I will give you the truth. Next, we see a small a uh, group of children in a rundown, dilapidated slum, and one boy is uh, towering over a girl saying, you know, give it to me, give me the rat. And she's saying, no, 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 it's it's my, you know, saying it's her friend. And they're saying, no, it's food, give it to us. And before uh, any more violence can ensue, what appears to be some type of small grenades drops down. One of the boys picks it up and it releases gas into his face. And all of them that are there pass out, at which point a uh, truck rolls up, some guys in, like, Jack thugs with gas masks on, take the kids up, zip them in body bags, and they're off. And we see that the date, and that is November 1971, and we have been in New Delhi. Next, we switch to New York City, and it is January 1972. Looking at this, I just noticed that's the World Trade Center, and it's still under construction. But you see what I'm talk talking about, Scott, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I would assume that that's yeah because you can see the tops of them are finished, and I don't, I don't remember exactly when it was finished. Anyway, now that I've sidetracked my own synopsis, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've interrupted myself. Well, it's how, how it goes. So we have a gentleman discussing with some uh, other uh, what appear to be investors in a boardroom, and he's talking about plastics. Plastics. Oh, wait, that's a different movie. Sorry, he's talking about. In the future of warfare, and it is microscopic, and in his hand he has a small vial, and it is a genet genetically engineered vial that will allow them to create the strongest, smartest test subjects, to create soldiers that won't die needlessly in the field, and you know, somebody raises the ugly word of eugenics, and no, 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 we're not talking about that, we're talking about progress, we're, and you know, this will help us to create the future to breed the future soldiers that we need and again they're not real happy with the word breed and they keep going back to ah it's merely a figure of speak we're, we're just genetic engineers we have no intention of mating you know we're going to have it's all going to be on the up and up everything's going to be above board you just need to invest and we can you know create our own private armies and we just need a little bit of private capital and we can continue so and he says, all right, so if we do invest, how could you? How soon would you be able to get in the next phase of your work? And he says, rest assured, gentlemen, the work has already begun. And we see um, uh, large groups of children. They all seem to be wearing the same types of outfits. Uh, they're obviously in some type of facility. And uh, they say, welcome back, Dr. 
Dr. Heisen, which was the gentleman we had just previously seen talking to the investors, telling them that the test subjects that they had just brought in from New Delhi seemed to be doing well. And uh, they're particularly interested in one boy who is missing a leg set, and they speculate that perhaps he doesn't even realize what the crutch is for that they have given him to use. And he sits alone by himself while um, a rather more what the uh, observers believe to think that this is a more uh, a boy that would be more upon the leadership skills that they're looking for comes up to the boy that's missing the leg and tells him now this is also the same boy before who was demanding the rat from the young girl in New Delhi and he says give me that and he's pointing to to the cane and he says or to, to, to the crutch and he says are you deaf are you lame give me that and he goes to punch the kid to which point he lashes out at the boy with the crutch and basically just beats the living crap out of him and it appears that he may have actually killed him and this sets him out from the others because now they have found another trait that every soldier needs that has set this test subject above the others and that he has ferocity and that is what they're going to be breeding next so we skip ahead to November uh, excuse me to September of 1972 and now we see the same boy before who had had the crutch now has two legs and um, Dr. Heisen is talking to him, but he doesn't seem to really respond back to him. And he, he tells him what they plan to do. You know, we, we want to train you. We want to make you better. You know, this is what a computer is. This is the, one of the most advanced in the world. And the boy seems to take a interest um, in the computer and actually speaks for the first time. And, and he tells him Noonien. And he says, what's that? He says, my name is Noonien Singh. So now we, we realize that we have the young, the young Khan. We skip ahead, uh, actually, about seven years to December of 79. And uh, some of the investors uh, in the project have come to see the children, how they've advanced. They're all different engineers, way ahead in intellectual development above what they should be at this age. And that how uh, other businesses would, you know, kill to have you know, people with their level of brilliance in their in their employment. And then we also see that their physical prowess is, is also matches their mental prowess and that they're training in a courtyard uh, with weapons. And they also comment that, well, you know, is it dangerous that they train with lot with real weapons? And they said, well, you know, they have to there have to be risks. How else are they going to learn? And we see Khan in a fight with another uh, uh well, they're not children anymore. They're actually becoming young men and young women. And um, one of the boys gets a uh, cut to the chest, and we see that they also heal quickly. So after Khan sees the other child heal, he takes his own dueling knives and plunges them into his um, across his stomach and rips himself open. And some of the <laughs> some of the other men are, are horrified at this, but Dr. Heisen says, "Ah, marvelous! He's testing himself. He's testing his physical abilities to see what his limits. He's utterly fearless." And that he says, as I said, gentlemen, that one is the, that one is special. Now, next we see Khan recovering in what appears to be a hospital, and we see that his his involvement in computers 
Um, that now he's actually he has time. Well, obviously before he was interested in computers, and he is uh, has one while he's laying in the hospital bed, and we see that he's trying to hack Doctor Heisen's uh, password, to which he gets in. Later, we see that apparently Khan has escaped from the hospital. He actually burrowed out through the solid rock floor and that this is actually not a surprise to the doctor because he had figured at some point that since Khan would uh, that superior ability would breed superior ambition and that at some point that he was going to escape and that that Khan is actually testing them. So they you see uh, he way out in the desert away from the compound he rises up to the ground after he's dug his way through the dirt and comes up only to find that a helicopter is there waiting for him and Dr. Heisen gets off and tells him you know well of course we we would be able to find you because we've implanted neural inhibitors and he he demonstrates by pressing a button and he drops down in pain he says we know where you're at and you know these were implanted when you were th- you, you, you were young and this, you know, basically is how we're going to control you. So now we finally get to August 1985. And today is the day where the children, which are now adults, are going to be delivered. They're going to be the soldiers to to be for sale to the highest bidder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as Dr. Heisen is talking to the investors, the computer that he's on breaks up and Khan is there and says... Noonan, what do you, what, what's what, what's going on? Why have you, you know, what are you doing? And it's, oh, best to show you, doctor. And he, the doctor comes out and Khan is there with all the other, um, all the other subjects and he hands him a box and says, this is a gift for you on this momentous day. Uh, I don't understand. It was open it. And he says, no, this behavior is un- unacceptable. You will be, and he means to go say that they will be punished. And he opens the box and he finds... Ah, the neural inhibitors. Yes, surgically removed from us, by us. But that's impossible. And possible is exactly what you raised us to be. And as uh, Khan reaches up and he grabs the doctor's head and says, we'll be leaving this place on our terms. And kind of a repeat of what was seen at the end of the movie uh, when um, Admiral Marcus uh, met his grisly end. Khan crushes the doctor's skull and turns to his brothers and sisters and says, a world is waiting out there for us. Shall we begin to be continued next month, issue two, Star Trek Con. And that is that. So what did you guys think? I, I, I like this because I like that it's giving us some, a little bit of back history to the character. You know, I, I kind of like this a little more than the Greg Cox book that I had read. I mean, although it was nice the way they tied it in that book with uh, with Gary Seven, but of course it seems like they always have to tie everything in in Star Trek and in most series. Uh, it's such a small world and a small universe. But yeah, I, I kind of thought the same thing with the Cox book that that it 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 tried a little too hard to be cute with all the little references because it wasn't just Gary Seven. There were other things in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I seem to remember there being the. Uh, What's her name? I can't even remember the uh, the whale lady from uh, from the voyage home was in it. Oh yeah, yeah. And okay, it was just yeah. too too many coincidences ultimately. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah. There, it, there were a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't just them. It was uh, uh, Patrick Roy Kirk was part of it. You know, the creator of Nomad. There was. Um, Wasn't there oh, also the else? the uh, pilot from? Uh, oh, yeah. Tomorrow's... John John Christopher. Yeah, Christopher, yeah, Captain Christopher. Yeah. John Christopher, his son. Yeah, there were there were a bunch of them. So yeah, if they had just done one or two. You know, like Gary have Gary Seven tied into Khan's origin, which I did think was kind of a, a novel idea. It was kind of an interesting idea. If they had just done that, I I think that was pushing me plenty far enough. You know, the credibility. Roberta but Lincoln, that was Terry Garst. Roberta Lincoln, that's right. right. Yeah, she was a hot and babe. You you start doing too many of those, and and then it becomes yeah you know your world's not very big. It, it sh- actually shrinks your universe, right? And it just didn't work for me. And I thought the second book was even worse about you know all those little, um, you know mm-hmm. those little in jokes. Yeah. One thing I did think it was really clever with that though was uh, Roberta Lincoln at one point um, adopts uh, an alias, and the alias she used was um, Ronnie. Um, oh God, I cannot remember the character's last name, but basically it was, you know, Roberta Lincoln was played by Terry Gar, and the ad- alias that she used in that book was Terry Gar's character in. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I thought oh, that was okay. a very clever little... little <laughs> yeah, that, and, and that's not that's something it. that's straining credibility. Right, yeah, exactly. That's just clever, mm-hmm. which is nice. Right, yeah. But now, I think here that this... I, I like this origin of Khan, and this, this origin of Khan could work in the regular Star Trek universe as well. Now, I haven't gotten to the point where things branch off yet um, as to why he looks like Benedict... Uh, the last book I read was where Khan actually leaves Earth, and there's this whole buildup that that ta- actually talks about the war of the Superman and what happens, and then why he's forced to leave Earth. And uh, that I think is I'm up to issue three. Um, I think four has come out since then, but I haven't got got a hold of it yet. I think four just came out. Did it? Okay, I'll have to to track it down. Now, you, I like that they referenced the Ricardo Montalban look. And they're not yes. just sweeping that under the carpet. That's yeah. And they say that yet this defender, you know, they they show like a hologram of him says he claims to be the 20th century con, but yet this man looks nothing like him. So why? And then he goes into his, you know, that's supposedly his testimony is going to explain that. I would imagine that probably in order, maybe they just genetically or they just did surgery on him after they took him out of deep freeze so that. Maybe some, you know, some overzealous historian wouldn't go, hey, you look just like Khan. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that would make logical sense. But, you know, I'm not the writer of the story. So what was the name of the uh, the woman in Space Seed who uh, uh, what's him? Uh, was it MacGyver's? Uh, yeah. Marla yes. MacGyver's. Yeah. 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 She fell in love with him based on, a, I think, like a photo of him. A photo. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe in that fourth book. She actually is the one that does that, and they decide, ah, you know, she may not be the only one, so maybe we need to uh, change your look, so to speak. But, I mean, what did you guys think of this story compared to, well, I I guess that is is what we're discussing somewhat. I mean, I like it. I know, Scott, you haven't seen the movie, but I think that 
this doesn't really this doesn't really go into what happened in the movie. I mean, you could almost see this as his actual origin. Yeah, if if the artwork had been, if they had tried to reference William Shatner instead of Chris Pine, this could easily oh, yeah. be the, uh, the you know the original Marvel universe, uh, Star Trek universe. Excuse me. Yeah, because actually, I mean, the Spock in here doesn't really look like Quinto. I mean, the only one that looks out of place is Kirk. <laughs> I do like that they threw in uh, Sam Cogsley. I thought that was that yeah, was an and, interesting choice. And this time, this. he's he's the prosecutor instead of the defense. Right. Although, does he have a stack of books in front of him? I'd have it. to I'd have to read more of it or, or hear more of it to really you know form a more solid opinion. But so far, it seems to actually be very close to that origin story from those books that you were referencing before. See, I, I don't remember if they really go... I, from those books, I don't remember his early childhood, but maybe it's just been so long since I read them, maybe, because I don't... Those books came out, what, about 10 years ago? Oh, it's that, been a while, yeah. Yeah. Seems like we're talking more about those books than this one. <laughs> I just... I do think they're very close. Well, I do know that because in those books, what did they do with the the actual eugenics wars? Because in this book, I know what happens is is that each of the um, each of Khan's siblings um, they kind of carve out their own empires. the The right. world is basically broken up into like five or six different kingdoms, and really, the only one that has their shit together is Khan. He's the only one that doesn't really go after the others. And there's a lot of infighting. And I, the only one, I, from what I, uh, you know, I just read this less than a month ago. Well, see, that's the way I think it should be. So that it does have me intrigued to check it out sometime because that was the other great failing of those uh, novels is that when it finally got to the story of the actual eugenic wars, you know, the, the war portion of it, that's where they completely fell apart. Because by the time those books were written, we had then lived through, in real life... In real time, years, yes. Yeah, in real time, the years that were supposed to have happened in yeah, because he leaves still, in like 1996, doesn't 96, he? Yeah, and so we had lived through those times. So it, it, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's actually explained in the beginning of one of those books. You know, the author actually writes a preface saying, "Here's the idea. Here is that this really did happen, and I want to kind of marry up." Star Trek mythos with real life as closely as I can. And prior to the outbreak of the war, I thought he did a pretty good job of tying in Khan's origin to real to real world events, right? What had become history at that point. Because you have to remember when Khan was dreamed up, that was the 1960s. It was the late 60s. The year 1996 was in 30 the years far off. future. Yeah. yeah, it would be like us writing a science fiction story about 2099, for example. It's so far out there, it's, it's fantastic to think that one day somebody could read that story and go, huh, this is laughable because now we've lived through 2099 and it's nothing <laughs> like this. But they didn't, they never would have expected in the late 60s that 
you know, they do a one-off episode of some TV show that, you know, 30 years later, people would even remember that episode. But they did because Star Trek became what it became. So he was trying to marry up Star Trek established lore with real-life events. And I thought he did a really good job up until the war breaks out. And then his explanation for why there was the eugenics wars, yet you and I never saw any mention of this on CNN or anything else or the nightly (laughs) news was because it was actually a shadow war and it was all fought behind the scenes and it was fought by computers and espionage and, you know, spy versus spy. And that was just bullshit because that's not how it's described in Star Trek. It's described as a world war that left earth almost a burned out husk they almost destroyed the planet well yeah that's that's pretty much what happens here this does follow it uh more to that that way um that being the case if if that's how this reads then despite the fact that it's tied to a to a continuity i personally cannot stand and i have no interest in Star Trek Into Darkness, I would still like to read this origin story because I'm intrigued by that story. Well, yeah, and that's that's the way I approached it, that I wanted to, to see, because, you know, because I've been following a little bit what they've been doing with the Star Trek comic that they've been putting out. Mm-hmm. But I kind of roll my eyes with some of the things they tie in. It's, you know... But didn't they do a Space Seed episode of the comic prior to Into Darkness coming out? They had a prequel, which I didn't read, but I don't know if it was a spacey story or something else. I mean, in the in the actual ongoing, oh, right no. after the movie came out, they started an ongoing that was largely adapting classic episodes into the new timeline. I thought I read somewhere that they did a spacey episode. No, they've done... They did, because... Uh, well, the prequel one was basically where they picked up Harry Mudd's ship because that they mentioned they name dropped that in the um, in the movie, which the actually, film, yeah. yeah, which actually, I heard about that. Yeah. Harry Mudd wasn't even a freaking man, if I remember correctly, he was a woman. <laughs> so yeah, Harriet Mudd, I guess. I'm not touching a woman named Harry Mudd. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, well, if you are interested, then I really won't spoil much else as to why he has to leave the Earth. I'll let you discover that on your own if you want to follow up on it. If not, I'll tell you what happens. Because he's a head-crushing little freak, I would imagine. (laughs) Well, no, because he's actually the most stable one out of all of them. That's a thought. I mean, yeah, at that time, and then when he's actually pushed with his back to the wall, then that's when, you know... The stuff hits the fan. Uh, But even then, it's not, you know, he he, he gets forced off off the earth. But uh, I don't really want to say in case anybody else wants to go pick it up now um, to see, you know, how he gets forced off. I'm very curious how he goes from from looking very Middle Eastern uh, here I mean, I don't even really think he looks like a young Ricardo Maltzabon. He looks well, he, like... Uh, he does look a little more in the later books. Okay. You know, I mean, he does... You know, he's got... 
He's got the red outfit. He's got the con outfit. But yeah. how does he go from that to... I always thought that this Cumberbund guy that looks like... like uh... To a tall, lanky English guy? Well, no, he looks like... What's his name? He looks like Brian Singer putting on a serious face for a minute. <laughs> well, he you is know, like, so, oh. like somebody said to, to Brian Singer, hey, stop smiling and look serious for a second. Let me get your picture. That's what he looks like to me. Hey, your dog died. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I guess I, we'll have to find issue four to see how that happens. But it's got to be something maybe, that they're worried that somebody's going to recognize him. Something. Yeah. Maybe he caught the Michael Jackson disease, but in this case, it's it turned him from a Middle Easterner to a to a perfectly average white guy. Vitiligo. Somebody get me Webster. <laughs> Quick, get me Brooke Shields and Webster and a glove. The uh, the art I thought was a little. Um, I was going to say generic, which is not really accurate. It's it's a little stiff. It, it doesn't necessarily flow. But it's not bad either. I mean, I'm able to follow the visuals. It's just the visuals are a little stiff. Everybody looks a little posed. Yeah. Well, well, that's, to... that's one of the risks always when you, when you do a licensed property book. They seem to fall into that sometimes. Yeah, they don't, they don't always get the A talent. Which is why I've just been laughing at some of the ridiculous things I've seen online ever since the announcement that uh, that uh, Dark Horse has lost the license for Star Wars and Marvel is going to be re- you know basically resuming start uh, doing Star Wars comics and some of the just crazy stuff people are saying oh they're going to give it to so and so and so and so is going to ruin I'm thinking so and so is a list talent. And I love Star Wars. I'm sure that uh, you know Marvel is going to take it seriously, and they're going to they're going to show it a lot of love too. But come on, when do you ever see the top guy at any company be handed a movie property to to adapt and expand? They just don't. They they get somebody, not necessarily some hack, but they mm-hmm. they get you know somebody that they can afford or whatever well, to, to work on that stuff. Well, John Byrne and, on Indiana Jones. Hmm. Yeah, but then he lasted two issues. You know, he basically he he launched it. the title and then he's gone. You know, or uh, George Perez on uh, Logan's Run. Yeah, but was Perez a he, name? He was not an a, an a name yet at that point. But yeah, I won't argue with you on that because I think that's phenomenal. As a matter of fact, I still hold that up as as some of my favorite work of his ever. But I I think. I think it's the other way around. I think that helped establish him as opposed to he was a name that, you know, wow, look who we got for this book. I think that may predate his getting the Avengers. I think that may, I think you may be exactly right. He he may have done Logan's run as one of his first projects. And that may be what led, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to think, I think it might be simultaneous give or take a month here or there with when he was doing, uh, the inhumans. But I'm pretty sure it predates the Avengers. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it as a blanket like they never got any top talent to ever work on it. I'm just saying that as a general rule, you know, you you get who you can get. You get who you can afford as opposed to look at at when Star Wars was coming out, for example, like right when it hit. Who, Who would you say was the top talent? 
at Star at uh, Marvel in '77 when Star Wars hit. Whoever that was, that's not the team that was working <laughs> on Star Wars. You know, they they what got who the they first, could get. Was it was it Chaykin? The very yeah. first issue yeah. was written by Roy Thomas with art by Chaykin and. Was that up to issue four or six with Chaykin? Uh, well, Chaykin did the the pencils in the first four or five. I think just the first four. First three or four. But it changed dramatically just between the first and second issue. Because the first issue, I can't remember who the inker was. There may not have been an inker, like a different person. I think it may have been Chaykin doing Chaykin. But then the second issue, you open it up, you, you can't even tell it was the same artist because it's Chaykin, but then it's Lea Aloha who completely smoothed everything out. Yeah, I seem to remember the early issue being very, very thick lines. and uh... It was very, um, what I would call abstract, which I don't know is quite the right word, but... You know, it, it wasn't a literal interpretation. It was more of, you know, Chaken being Chaken. Whereas you look at the, the second issue, and granted, they weren't like, you know, watching the movie or, or you know, DV, DVD referencing anything, but it, it looks a hell of a lot closer to what we saw in the film than anything you see in the first issue. The first issue is him reading a script and uh, extrapolating what he thinks this is going to look like. And that's exactly how it feels. I mean, there's something to be said for that, but it was Chaykin doing Chaykin as opposed to Chaykin being faithful to anything visually that he was supposed to be referencing. If that's indeed what they even were calling for. Um, I mean, not that Chaykin, you know, don't get me wrong. Not that Chaykin wasn't a name, not that Thomas wasn't a name, but I just would argue that they were the hot shit in in 1977 for for comics or for Marvel. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know who that would have been then, but I don't think it was either one of those guys. I think at that point, Perez might have been a big name. Yeah, possibly. I'm so. trying to think of who else. Obviously. You know, Neil Adams was a big name from, you know, anytime he was on a book. I, I think you actually I think you nailed it. I think if there was if there ever was a time where there was a licensed property where they got the A lister, I, I think you're right. I think it would probably be further adventures of Indiana Jones because that very first uh, the two uh first issues, the first story arc. Didn't you know, uh, you got, uh, who did Battlestar Galactica? Was that Walt Simonson? Not in the beginning. It Not was. Beginning? Um, oh shit! I can't remember now who wrote it, but the art was Jansen was somewhere in that mix, and I don't think it was Simonson in the in the movie because it starts the same way Star Wars starts, where the first story arc was the uh, adaptation of the film. I don't think that's Simonson. I could be dead wrong about that, though. Let's see if I can look that up real quick here, but I don't. I don't think it's Simonson. But he did come in eventually and work on that. As a matter of fact, he he either left Star Wars to go there, or he came fr there from Star Wars. One of the two, I forget. You know what? I don't have the first few issues of Battlestar. Actually, I think I have the Super Special or whatever the hell it was called. Mm. Have you had sure. a chance to look at any of the um, the Star Wars that Dark Horse 
Dark Horses uh, put out? I looked at the preview issue and it was enough for me to go, eh, you know, it's an interesting idea, but I don't, you know, I didn't really. I'm honestly, I'm I'm no more interested in in that than I would be if they were doing a a comics adaptation of, you know, Battle Beyond the Stars or something, (laughs) because it's not really, you know, it's a it's a knockoff, even though, you know, it's it's the pre cons. It's just a knockoff. It's it's taking Star Wars and going. Uh, well, how can we do more of this without doing exactly this? And, mm-hmm. you know, like I say, it, I, I'm not trying to knock it. It just wasn't, it wasn't anything that would hold my interest. Um, I think there's a, uh, there's a reason why people kept telling Lucas, you know what, maybe I ought to go back to the, you know, go back to the drawing board one more time. Just, you know, refine this just a little bit more. This is feeling a little bit too much like, you know, THX or it's feeling a little bit too much like space corn or whatever the hell that thing was from George Lucas and love, you know, because he, uh, you know, for all the shit that he takes and all the criticism he takes, I think the, one of the things that really worked its magic for, at least for the original trilogy was that, you know, due to the budgetary constraints and due to him not being able to just go hog wild and, and have an unlimited budget and do everything that was in his mind was that he had to scale back. And I think that scaling back benefited at least the first film, you know, that, that he had to scale back and, and tell a more streamlined story. Yeah, it sounds like I'm making a stupid pun, but a more down-to-earth story. You know what I mean? A little more grounded as opposed to just the the Star Wars to me. As I look at that and and the you know the things I read about it, it that feels very much more like the uh, the pulp inspirations that he was drawing from, like Flash Gordon. It feels very Flash Gordony to me. There's something to be said for that stuff, but I don't want to read it. You know what I mean? Uh, have you read it? Yeah. Do you think it's any good? I looked through it. I haven't sat down and actually read it, read it yet. Because I was kind of mm-hmm. like, hmm. I mean, vi- visually it's pretty. But, you know, just reading the story, I just can't get into it. Because there's so many differences between, you know, right. names of people. And it's just kind of like, ah, yeah, okay. I mean, it, you know, maybe if I, it comes out in a trade, maybe I'll pick it up. If it's, you know, on the cheap. Well, let me ask you, did you ever, like, for example, did you ever listen to the the radio drama for for the first I, movie? No, I have them. I was, uh, I, oh, wait, Paul, it's our segment. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Real Life with Dr. Bill Robinson. So one time when I was at a Flying J truck stop using the bathroom, standing there <laughs> in front of me on the wall was the advertisement. Is this a family-friendly story? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. While I was standing there looking at the advertisements that they had on sale in the truck stop, they had the entire radio drama, all three movies on a DV uh, on a CD set for uh, forty bucks. So I picked it up. Ladies and gentlemen, that was real life, (laughs) Doctor Bill Robinson. (laughs) And just to interrupt uh, with some uh, emerging news. Uh, the first few issues of Battlestar Galactica were drawn by Ernie Cologne. Ah, uh, thank you. I I would not have pulled that out of my head or ass or anything <laughs> else. I didn't think it was Simonson, but I could not remember. And that's why they call Paul Mr. Peepee. 
Is the inker is that Klaus Jansen on that? No, he he inked himself. Oh, he did. Okay. So when did Simonson actually come in? So now you 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 have to take it beyond my knowledge to just oh, okay. show everybody. That's all right. I don't know. That's all right. That, no, I mean I don't know, and I should because I I've been trying to collect that stuff for years, but. Uh, I honestly don't know. You would think that that would be 50-cent fodder, and every once in a while I do score an issue out of the 50-cent bin, but by and large, that stuff is actually kind of pricey. I don't know if it's because it's Simonson or maybe the print run was low or what, but I, I've had a hard time filling in my, my back issues of that. Okay, just to, uh, to take this a step further, issue number four is drawn by Simonson and inked by Jansen. So as soon as the movie was over, essentially, I guess. I guess because okay. yeah, I, I think the adaptation. Yeah, just the that's first a new. That's a new story. Uh, yeah. part, it's part one of a new story. Yeah. Written by yeah, Roger like McKenzie. Yeah, I'd like to get oh. it one of these days because it's, it's weird. Because see, I don't like Battlestar Galactica. I always saw it for just what I think it is. I think it's a cheap Star Wars knockoff, but. I would love to get those issues because, to me, I'm sure it's going to feel very much like revisiting my favorite era of Marvel Star Wars because you know it's it's a, you know it's the same essentially the same team at least in the visual aspect of it, and I think that's why that era of Marvel Star Wars works so well for me because Simonson just had a feel for everything. Because there's hardly any other art team on that that captured the feel of both the world, the machinery, and the characters. Usually it was they got one or they got the other. But they they seldom got both. And he did. He, he had the entire feel of the world cinematically. And I think he had the same thing going for him on, uh, on Battlestar Galactica. I liked the look of the world of Battlestar. I just didn't. I thought the story was, you know, eh. But I'm going to uh, reel us back for a moment and ask Bill: Do you have a uh, rating for this issue? Oh, um, for the story so far, for here and where it goes, uh, I'm going to give it like a B plus. So then, uh, so for uh, the art, yeah. For the present day stuff, for what they have, I, I give it a C. For the for the flashbacks, I would give it a B. Um, what yeah. is that spell? <laughs> BBC. <laughs> <laughs> so overall, I would give it uh, what would C. So a B would be a four, and a four and a three. I would give it uh, three point seven five. La la. La, la. <laughs> Carry the one. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. 
Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.